What's up? Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. Today we're covering Chapter 3 of Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, it's called The Valiant. The Valiant. I wonder what that's a reference to. Well, let's find out. The Valiant Enemy. <laughs> <laughs> we left off with Larg and Gultana, like, moving headlong into this into War of the War. Lions. Yeah where Larg crowns Prince Orinus, Goltana crowns Ovelia, and so they're supporting different candidates, yep. and they are regents for those candidates, and they're now, the war is full scale. It's they on. have to go to war. Um, I really like the very beginning of the chapter. It starts yeah. you off, just a conversation mm-hmm. of, I believe it's, um, what, Orlando, and it's that group, right? Yeah, Goltana at Fort Basilet. And yeah. they're just talking about how the war's going. Because right at the end, you've got, thus begins the Lion War, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that was kind of the very last part before chapter three. And now, instead of seeing any battles or anything, we're just hearing people talk about it. Yes. And it's very, I think it's actually really good. Yeah. I actually liked it a lot. Um, because we have an objective like overview of the results of the war, I wrote down here, Over 200,000 people have been killed. Massive starvation and drought, supply issues, over 100,000 refugees. It's crazy. And this is all because two people are bickering over which one of them gets to sit on the golden chair. (laughs) Yep, that's exactly right. It's Uh, like, it's it's really good though. It's a good job, it's a good storytelling technique to get you like, you're seeing the results of war and it's horrific. It's really, really jacked. And they're just talking about it and it's just like, Holy crap, like it's crazy. I particularly took note of the the attitude about this. So all of that is like reported. Yeah. And then the Marquis de Limberry is like, yeah, doesn't matter about the famine, doesn't matter about yeah. the death toll, doesn't matter about the wounded. We expected all of that. No, yeah. it's the drought that threatens us. The markets are empty and tax collections fall short. Ah, that's right, they need to raise taxes. It's that's like, right. the, the problem here is yeah. not that the people are dying and suffering, mm, nope. it's not famine, it's drought, and it's because there are no people selling stuff that we can tax. Because they can't make a profit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They can't continue their war effort without the taxes. Yep. So they're raising taxes, but they do another thing. They raise it up to like 30, 40%, like way too high. And then um, they, ta- they include enforcement as well. Yeah. They're like, and also go and arrest anyone who is selling grain without yep. paying any taxes on it's, it. So it's like they're, they're really going to enforce this and it's all to fund the war effort and it just becomes kind of a money thing. It's right? crazy. And so I wrote here, where's Gaff Garion when you need him? <laughs> He'd be like, wow. You people are horrible. <laughs> like the, throughout the whole meeting, he'd just be like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And they'd all just ignore him. Yeah. Um, things are no better for Larg. And, you know, they're all talking no. about that yeah, too. Yeah. It's like, in fact, many of their refugees from Zeltenia are going over to like Larg's territory. Yeah. And, and one of the guys there, Blanche. Blanche. Viscount, Viscount, Viscount I think is his title. Blanche. Cool. He's like, oh, let him go. Then he can take care of them, right? Yeah, there's like, mouths we to don't, We don't need to worry about those people <laughs> now. It's, yeah, it's just <coughs> That's this, ridiculous. This, such a dismissive attitude towards the suffering of the people of Ivalese. Yeah, and they they're, just don't they're care own, at all. their own people. 
And the only person at that whole meeting mm. talking about, hey, maybe we could like engage in some peace talks or something. Yeah. Is Orlando. <laughs> and everyone's just like, shut up, Orlando. Shut up. We're not talking about peace. We're talking about war. Yeah. Anyway, and they keep talking. And Orlando brings it up again. He's like, yeah, but you know, that peace is sounding mighty, mighty good right now with the drought coming along and all. And, yeah. and they basically, I think it's a Goltana. It's like, okay, Orlando, if you bring up peace one more time, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and like, it's, it's crazy. But I, I get the feeling that this is kind of what happens. <laughs> You know, behind yeah. closed doors with a lot of, um, especially authoritarian, like sure. monarch sure. type situations sure. where it's like, yeah. you don't say certain things or it's off with your head, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Orlando says, uh, in the 50 years war, who bore a greater burden than they, meaning the people? Would you yeah. thank them now with higher taxes? We cannot long sustain this war. It is a matter of resources and resolve. And then... That's when Goltana's like, resolve? Like, do you not have resolve? Like, and, and he, Orlando tries to say, in the 50 years war, we were honor bound to fight because our land was being trespassed yes. by a foreign nation. And this and time it, it's harder to justify why you're fighting. Yeah, right? and he's like, in so civil there's war. no honor in this? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. they're going back and forth and, and uh, uh, Goltana tries to, tries to make it about this is being fought for the people too. You know, the the crown oh, is so corrupt. I, I did write a note things there. Like that. There was one decent point made yeah. by Goltana, which is the point made by all authoritarians, right? Yes. And it is, um, of course, Goltana has a point. This is what I wrote. Living under tyrant kings would bring about a great deal of problems as well. Their people wouldn't come out well on that end either. Yeah. So given the fact that they're the South, they're the, the rebels, they're the ones, if they lose, then they'll be seen as, oh, these are the people who, yeah. they're our problem. We're gonna start giving them harsher penalties and things like that. We're gonna kind of hold a grudge against people from that region. Right. And the the kings, the tyrannical kings would not do well. They Their people wouldn't do well under the North's kingship right. either. Decent point. I don't think it, it's, it, it excuses all it's of this. It's more of a justification. But, exactly. By the time the people are suffering at this level anyways. Yes. It's like, Oh, I, they're trying to justify the right. short term. We already started war. Suffering. So we have to keep will doing lead it. to a less corrupt uh, crown, right? Yes. Of Which course, means the people suffer less, theoretically. Of course, they're just as corrupt as the other I side. No, and, and I, I, I think I, what you just said, that sentence, I write that like four or five different times <laughs> in this chapter. Like, yeah, turns out the new king's just as corrupt as the old king. Yeah. And so yeah, he's he's he gets really fed up with Orlando's. Uh, yeah, yeah. He calls him. I think he he calls him a coward by the end of it. Yeah, um, sure. He's like, I, I think uh, Blanche says something like, because um, his his nickname is the Thunder God, right? TG. Yeah. That's what they call him. <laughs> it's a TG, and um, he says something like, I don't know the exact line, but something like, um, you know, your reputation uh, as the Thunder God. This is more yeah. like of a a slight breeze or a slight stir of the wind or something like that, <laughs> uh, given the <laughs> way you're right. talking right now, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he and Sid kind of go back and forth, and um, he gets pissed off by that. I'll not sit and suffer these insults. And yeah. Anyways, they're all upset at Orlando, who's the only one who seems to be concerned about people rather than power. Yep. So it gives you a bit of um, insight as to because we've seen the 
you know, the, the scheming of Larg and Dice Darg. We've seen Dice Darg side of it, yeah, the, the Belv side. Right, and it's like, okay, we've seen the corruption there yeah, they're crap. in the story. We get it. Now we've seen it here, too. Yeah. And it's like, okay, the, there's no winners yes. in this situation. Yes. There's, the people do not win no matter who wins this. Exactly, exactly. So it's like the whole thing is, is really bad. That is the human condition. Yes, it is. Um... Okay, so after that scene ends, um, Ramza decides to head to talk to his brother Zalbag and to try to explain the situation to him. He seems to think like Zalbag might have a greater sense of honor than Dice Dark. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I'm not sure um, where Ramza's getting this idea. Well, it, it sort of confirms my interpretation earlier that he has a closer relationship with Zalbag than he does with Dice Darg. I, I could see that. Um, I took it as he thought they're both great. He liked Dice Darg and Zalbag a yeah. lot. And now he has very good evidence that Dice Darg is bad, but he doesn't yet have clear evidence that Zalbag is bad. And so. Aside from the fact he, that he, he gave the order to shoot Petra. He already thought they were both great. Because he, he was there when, when that Zalbag, was Zalbag told. Oh, I thought yes, that was Dice Darg. No, Zalbag told oh. Algus to shoot Tetra. Oh, I, so I, I got not, the brothers confused at that moment. Maybe he thinks, maybe Ramza thinks that hmm. Zalbag doesn't care about commoners, but he's at least got some sense of noble honor in regards to there's corruption or your or your our brother Dystarg is dealing underhandedly. This is not honorable. An honorable right. knightly thing to do. Maybe Zalbag will be convinced by that. I, I'm not sure what he's thinking about going to Zalbag here, honestly. But he's I mean, going he to try to tell He doesn't him. have a lot of options, right? Well, he's also learned he's since the then about the whole Church of Glabados, like, actually puppeteering this whole thing. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and he probably wants to appeal to that, too. It's like, you guys think you're, like, you're the ones doing the... the you know, like pulling the strings, but it's actually not. It, it, it's actually the church, right? Yeah. So he, he wants to try to explain this to Zalbag in hopes that he'll do something about it. So he's on his way to the royal city of Lazalia to tell him that. Um, but on the way, there's, um, you, you're in Goland, I think. is. Yeah, Goland Coal City. Yeah. And this you meet a, a character here, Oran Durai, who wrote the Durai report or the Durai papers mm -hmm. that Arislam is revealing in the present day or the future right. or whatever. The historian who's looking back at this. This is the guy who wrote the history that is now being revealed. And he is um, Sids, the Thunder God's adopted son. Um, so he's... Adoption is it was a common thing in this game, yeah. it seems. Yeah. To, you need an heir. Right. And it's like you don't have a son or whatever. Sons die of disease or whatever. Right. Then you've got you to have somebody to pass it on to. Um, but he's in trouble in the scene. He's being chased by some thieves. It's like he um, accidentally discovered their hideout. Because yeah. <laughs> he shouts back. He's like, guys, like next time put a sign up that says, like, don't come in. We're having a secret hideout meeting. Uh, we're at a thieves, a thieves' guild meeting, and they're just like, shut up. They're just going to kill him. Yeah. I got the impression that he was a lowly peasant based on this. Like, mm. oh, poor dude, just kind of wandered yeah. in. He's defenseless. Right. I was actually kind of surprised to find out who, who he is. 
He seems to be um, involved at least in hunting down deserters later on, mm -hmm. but in some form of intelligence gathering or... Usually he has a squad with him. He's got yeah. a group of people with him. And in the meeting, uh, they do mention that um, Oren informed me this and this and this, so mm -hmm. like maybe he's not necessarily a spy in the strict sense, but Just at least does some Just reconnaissance. reconnaissance yeah. Work. Yeah, he's like probably a middle a middle rank or so in the military there. So um, we save him from these thieves. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a pretty short scene. It's more or less just them meeting for the first time, shaking hands, seeming to like resonate one with another. It's like, hey, you're a bro. Thanks. Like, yeah. yeah. Hope I cross your path again someday. Olan noticed oh, something yeah. about us right before that. Is he Olan? It's Olan. It's literally every freaking R, R and L, L backwards. is backwards yeah. in this game. That's crazy yeah, to it's me. It's pretty funny. It's, at least most of the time it's like, oh, you think 50, 15, 50. Yeah. 25, 50% of them will be yeah. right. It's like every time <laughs> they get it wrong in this game. It's crazy. Oh, man. So um, he notices something about us. Um, and he kind of like does a double take and then says, oh, you know, he, he doesn't really bring it up, but it, it seemed like he recognized us. Yeah. Um, but he won't say exactly what that meant. Mm. So he may know who we are, but we don't know who he is. Right. And we'll get another scene with him here. So that's, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty short scene. Ramza makes his way to the royal city of Lazalia, and this is where he confronts Zalbag. Um, uh, uh, and tries yeah. to ask him, like, can is, is there no way we can just end the fighting here? This is yeah. ridiculous, right? Like, this is not an honorable war that we're fighting. Um, he and and he also tries to tell him about Dystorg's role in the attempted assassination of Ovelia, and mm -hmm. Zalbag does not believe him. He's like, he doesn't at all. Yeah. You're lying. Like, how dare you? I actually took down. The, the dialogue here. Um, but he's he's like, you know, get out of my sight kind of thing. Go back to Egros and just mm -hmm. like leave me alone. Like he really, really yeah. um, is upset and disturbed by the fact that Ramza would try to implicate his own brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, is not loyal. Yeah. So uh, he talks about trust, you know, like how can you not trust your own blood, like these sorts of things. And um, Ramza says to him, you speak of trust, Zalbag, yet you show me none in kind. And his response is, what have you ever done to inspire my trust? The mistake was my own. Until today, I had looked on you as a true brother, but your mother's common blood forever stains you common. You are not fit to bear the Beowulf name. It's like, that's an intense... Yep. Intense uh, dismissal from yeah. <laughs> from Zalbag. There. He's very upset at us. And, and Ramza well, is is like you can't mean that. He he's really right. struck. He's really hurt by that. Mm -hmm. I feel. And that's when the soldiers come in. And, yeah, and yeah. Zalbag just leaves. Yeah. Um, what happens later on, and we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. But when we get accused of being a heretic, mm -hmm. is that? Zalbag who reported us? I don't think so. You I don't? Think, okay, Because they, okay, okay. they would have to have come from probably Lionel or some other Far away. place. I guess they, no, I guess the Inquisition could have been, since this is the, the royal city, 
uh, the royal capital, Lazalia. Because it happens pretty soon after. Like, we have an, it's an argument. Zalbag doesn't trust us. He basically disowns us. And then all of a sudden, we're getting arrested for heresy. Yeah. I guess, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. But I, I suppose that the Inquisition, um, that that order could be from Lazalia, where we are now. Mm. I, I guess, I'm not sure why I did, but I had the impression that they had, like, traveled there, like, sort of following Ramza around. Trying to like track him oh, down, to, like, but I don't know if that's true or not. Mm, if they're from the city, then they would have had to heard news. The heretic is here; he's gone to see his brother at the castle or whatever. Right. Let's go there now. So I'm not sure hmm. where they came from, but yeah, Zalbag is told the Thunder God broke through some defenses. We got to go meet him now. He just like runs out, and so as um, Ramza is getting ready to leave, Alma comes out to talk to him. Yeah. He explains to her that Delita is still alive, that he's possibly allied with some really dangerous people in the Church of Glabados. He's mm -hmm. worried about that. That Dice Darg plotted Ovelia's assassination. And remember, Alma and Ovelia were friends. Yeah. In uh, yeah, Orban. the monastery. Monastery, yeah. right. Um, and uh, I really liked this line that that Ramza says about that. He says, I'm sure he had his reasons, but I cannot see them for the blood. And it's, it's just, go. that's really good line. It's like, yeah, it is. he's trying really hard to like understand people in this game, yeah. I, I feel. I feel like he's I a person so. who, it's really important to him that he understands others and he tries really hard to get into their shoes and see their reasons, but he just can't seem to understand anybody yeah. because, uh, He's so good-hearted, and he can't seem to understand. Um, there, there's, there's actually something pretty similar when we were reading the Silmarillion for oh, yeah. our old book club, where it talks about the fact that like Manway had a hard time, sort of anticipating Morgoth's. Oh yeah. Plots to like undo yeah. what they had made, and he had a hard time like. Anticipating because he couldn't understand the heart of an evil person, right? Yeah, and it's just like because he's not he doesn't think that way himself it, it doesn't occur to him that somebody would be capable of thinking that or doing that Yeah, and I get a little bit of that from Ramza and the whole game He's been like that. He just can't yeah. seem to No, my brothers can't be like that. No, like yeah. that can't be right He can't mm -hmm. seem he just he's trying his hardest but he's really struggling to understand the hearts of deceitful, evil human beings who only want more power and don't care about others when he is such a empathetic person and doesn't care about power, doesn't care about reward for doing good deeds. It's just, yeah. it's so beyond his understanding that people could think that way. And so he's still trying to see Dice Darg's perspective. I'm sure he had his reasons, but I cannot see them for the blood. It's just, I can't understand it. It just, that's a great, that's the a blood great. that is on his hands is, it makes it impossible for me to, to justify, right? Mm. It's a great line. It's, it's, um, this is one of the difficulties with the video game genre, but it is a very interesting line given, I don't know how many people do you think Rums has killed so far in the game? Good question. Like a hundred? A lot. <laughs> 500? Not, probably not 500. Because these battles are pretty small. Yeah, but they're like six, seven, and there's like a bunch of them. I'd say he's killed about 100 people. Like him himself, maybe less. Yeah, but his like party, 
probably responsible 20. for at least 100 to 150, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a hard time understanding Ramsey's perspective <laughs> for the blood. For the blood on I his I guess hands. it depends on, because a lot of times he, he does try to avoid fighting. Yeah, yeah. And he's attacked. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's yeah. more self-defense or it's oh, like yeah. he's commanded. It's a military sort of action, you know. It's like he was... He was not in command. He was a cadet, or right, told. Right, strategic it, thing. So it's it's a little different than Dice Dargs plotting to murder a princess who is not on the field of battle or something like yeah. that, right? Um, just for the sake of power gain. So I, I get your point, yeah. and it's true. I just I guess I see the what's the word for it the. What is the word I'm looking for? Uh, the like the guilt or shame that would be associated with the killing, mm. not to be at the same level, because he, in war, it's like if you're a soldier, right? You, you have to fight. <laughs> it's 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 not it's not the same as murdering somebody, right? Like right, right. On the field, a military target, whatever it might be. But yes, there's a lot of blood on uh, Ramza's hands as well, for sure. Um, I just had to bring that up. Then it's, just, it's just how video games are. Yes. Well, I think it's a lot worse <laughs> in games like Uncharted or something. Oh, where it's like thousands <laughs> and it's just you and it's literal just like... I mean, they are mostly in self-defense, but it's like you don't have to be there searching for this treasure. <laughs> I gotta get that money, man. Gotta get paid. Uh, mowing down with like machine guns, you know, like yeah. tons and tons of people. Um, or like, you know, driving through civilian towns and just like wrecking the freaking place and destroying its economy. Hey, those people would all understand if he just explained to them that it wasn't <laughs> his fault. He was being chased. <laughs> he had to kill all those people. Yeah. They were going to kill him. Okay. Okay, then we get the confessor, uh, Zalmor Lucianata. Yeah, The he holy office up. of the Inquisition. I come to bring you before the office on charges of murder of Cardinal Delacroix and suspicion of heresy. Um, yeah, so he's like, uh, basically, <laughs> which is very true <laughs> of mm. um, history. If you don't surrender, that is an admission of guilt. Yes, <laughs> yes. well, especially <laughs> in the medieval times. Yes, absolutely. It's just like, yep, oh yep, my yep. gosh, dude. Silence, like, silence is an admission of guilt. Um, you do not have a right to be silent. Yep. The way you do modern times, you never. That that's a very recent yes. invention. That didn't. That was not a thing before. It's like you better defend. It's it's um, guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. That that's how it used to be. It's like, if you if you come with us, obviously we're going to find you guilty because yep. that's what we do. If you don't, then you're guilty because yeah. oh you're running away. Well, of course you. It's the witch trials. Yeah. It's a witch trial. It's exactly what this is. This whole thing, right? It's just yeah, a sham. Yeah. Yep. Ramza uh, doesn't buy it. Yeah, Kill, um, kills them all. <laughs> <laughs> you fight them off. Uh, I, I and um, I believe uh, Lucianata himself does the whole warping escape thing, right? Yeah, ready. that's always a, that's a convenient thing um, that keeps happening. At the end of most battles, there's a, a portent guy who runs away like that. But yeah. Uh, He's trying to understand at the end how the Office of Inquisition could have learned about the Aura site, right? Um, so th this leads me to believe that 
the Office of Inquisition is in a separate place from and where the Cardinal not, was in Lionel. It's not a Zalbag. And, gotcha. well, Zalbag, I don't think he told Zalbag about Arasite. Yeah, because they mentioned the Arasite, they mentioned the murder of Delacroix. I don't, I don't think that we told Zalbag all that stuff. Yes. Right? Does right. he know that we were the well, ones that did that? Well, he has been branded a heretic and they knew the Cardinal's dead. So I think there's a rumor that Ramza has killed the Cardinal going around. Okay. But the Office of Inquisition, knowing about the Arasite, uh, implicates like the whole church itself. Yeah. Not just like the Cardinal or a few key it's like, like leaders in the church. It's like, okay, the whole church yeah. is in on this Zodiac Brave summoning plot. And uh, mm. this is not good. <laughs> yeah. Like this is more widespread than I thought. Um, and he starts to uh, wonder about whether Delita is working for the church itself. And so he's talking with Alma about this. She convinces him, because it takes a long time, because he's like, no, you can't come. No, you can't come with me. No, you can't come with me. Yeah, I really thought she'd be in our party. I was like, yeah. it's going to happen. And she convinces him to let her come. Um, Only well, to a point. At then, first, yeah. she's like, I'm, I just fought against the Inquisitors. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm obviously a heretic now. A heretic now. Yeah. They're going to come after me. Even yep. that's not enough. <laughs> to convince Ramza to bring her along. He's like, just go yeah. apologize and repent or whatever the hell you have to do. Make yeah. up any excuse. I made you do it. Like, whatever. You're right. But it's not until she's like, you are a heretic. You're like um, a wanted man. Mm. You're not just going to be able to go into Orban Monastery. I studied uh, there. I can right. help you get in. Yes. Right? They, they'll recognize me and all that stuff. She became useful. So he's like, okay, fine. Once that's over, you're coming back. Yeah. <laughs> it promised me that. He's like, okay, I promise. Like, I'm holding you to that. Like, that's the end of this for you. And unfortunately, she doesn't stay with us for very long. No, it doesn't work out. But in that conversation, because um, he's trying to convince him, oh, just go beg forgiveness. You'll be fine. Everyone everyone likes you. You'll be great. It'll be fine. Yeah. And it's like uh, she says, Dystark would pr would desert me to protect Beowulf. I don't yeah. know how it's worded in more of the lines. The Beowulf house, yeah. That's more or less it. And um, and Ramza's response is, yes, he is capable of that. Yep. And so it's like, yeah, what what Ramza thought could protect him or Alma or anybody has slowly turned into a thing that is a threat now, and it won't actually protect anybody. Yeah. Um, and oh, the other thing, she was like trying to withhold information until he promised her. That he would take her with him, right? Because she oh, knows that the yes. she knows that the um, the the Virgo stone is mm, at yes. Orban Monastery. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Which is like a whole tip for where you should go next. And he's like, "Okay, fine, I'll go there. You can't come though." And then she's like, "But <laughs> yeah. you don't know the people, at Orban. I do. You're you're a branded yeah. heretic. They, you know, I can help you get in." That that's the only thing that convinces him to let her come. But when they arrive at Orban Monastery, it's already sacked, and like a ton of people are dead. Like a ton of the priests, yeah, and uh, like elders and things like that. Elder Simon is wounded, so I guess the way I see this in my head is like they arrive there, and it's like okay, maybe she, maybe she was. I I do wish there was more of a like one more sort of transitional scene because it kind of just opens up there just inside the, the a monastery. Oh, there's yeah. not like a, a a little bit of a time spent. Okay, here's the plan, right? Like we're gonna sure put you in a, some kind of like hooded robe or something. Or yeah. I'm gonna tell them you're this person. Um, they'll accept me. Uh, I'll go talk to Elder Simon 
and explain what's going on and, and you know, like some attempt to be like, okay, here's a plan for how we're gonna get in. And then they arrive and it's like, everyone's dead. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, Ch- what happened? Yeah. Run in there. Then the scene where they find Simon, right? Um, yeah, that would have been better. I feel like that would have transitioned better from uh, Lazalia into Orban, but... Um, the transitions in this game are difficult because it's all just one square setting. Yeah, block. just like a little. The scenes, it's like a stage play almost, yeah. right? Like a theater where it all just happens there and there isn't a good transition way to go from one place to the next. It's just scenes over and then it's a new scene, right? Yeah, they kind of. And it's all static. It's in They one usually place. either fade to black or they'll like um, raise the camera up into black and then sure, down sure. from that kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, it, the, the little uh, diorama sets, <laughs> yeah. right, they're, they're pretty small. And it's like a lot of the story has to take place on just the same set on which there's a battle, generally. So um, they yeah. kind of have to use a battle uh, set for telling the story as well. For all that stuff, yeah. Outside of the War of the Lions, um, like hand-drawn cutscenes. Oh, those ones, yeah. Anyways, Elder Simon explains that the church is seeking to restore itself to prominence by taking the stones. So he knows about, you know, the plot going on, and he's, tur- he's been turning a blind eye to it. I really liked how Simon, like, the way that his character's written in the scene. I thought it was really good. Um, so he's, he's perfectly capable at this point of voicing... The church is manipulating Larg and Galtano, mm-hmm. pitting them against each other to weaken them and to and to get the people against them, so that they will turn to the church yeah. for salvation. Right. That this is this is what they're doing, so that the church can become a prominent, powerful, governing force again in Evilies. He's willing to admit that conspiracy mm-hmm. up to that point, but what's really interesting is what. Uh, <laughs> Ramza says after that, that that Simon has a hard time putting into words himself because he really does not, he knows it's true, but yeah. he just does not want to believe that his church mm-hmm. is capable of it, right? So uh, Simon says, as a first step, they have set Dukes, Larg, and Galtana against one another to whittle down their military might. The longer the fighting lasts, the weaker the Dukes become, and the more the people lose faith in the crown. And Ramza's first, Ramza's so done with that part of it, that's like not important. Mm-hmm. He says, and by gathering these stones and reviving the Zodiac Braves, what do they hope to gain from such a show? And Elder Simon can't, he's like, oh, well, of course, uh, the, you know, they're trying to win over the people. They're trying to like get the people mm-hmm. under their side. It's like, that doesn't explain the Lukavi. Yeah, yeah. And, and Simon at that point basically says, you, you look so much, you have the demeanor so much of your father. Oh, of course. Maybe you have what it takes to stop their ambitions. Mm-hmm. He can't out loud admit that Lukavi demons have like infiltrated his church mm-hmm. and are using the stones for great evil, like demonic purposes. Yeah. But he was willing to, to explain at least that they were trying to rise politically. Right. But he like can't seem to bring himself to say, yeah, demons have infested my church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he, all he can do is say, you know, I think you might have what it takes to stop this. I just really liked the way his dialogue was written there because it would be so painful for somebody who had dedicated their whole lives, right, 
Oh yeah, he's an old guy, yeah. To service of this church of Glabados and giving his faith to it, to then have it <laughs> unravel in this way. Um, and yeah, he's definitely been turning a blind eye to it. He didn't want to believe it, even though he knew it was happening. And he, he admits his sin in this, right? So currently, I think Confessor Marcel is down there with some other people trying to find the Virgo stone. Like down in the, uh, like in the archives, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a new character introduced here. Isilud. Oh, Isilud, yeah, yeah. He's actually the son of Falmarv, who we, we realize this later, we see this later, um, when we're at like Duke Barrington's castle. Um, he's a really interesting character though. He, Isilud, does not know what's really going on mm. here. He's, he's convinced that what the church is doing is for the sake of the people. This is to change, um, to, to make all men equal, to like, to, to, you know, destroy this sort of hierarchy of nobles and commoners, um, to like balance out the power for the people, that sort of thing. I took a lot of um, the, the dialogue here because it's really quotable and just really well written. Okay. So he says to Ramza, you are a Beov. Why do you not heed your brother's counsel? Why? And, and Ram says, it is because I'm a Beov that I do not heed them. The Beov name stands for truth and justice. It is not a tool to be used for selfish gain. Uh, later on in the battle, uh, Isilud says, the Church of Glabados envisions a world devoid of class divides, a world where all men can live as equals. Saint Ajora spoke of such a utopia. It is the promised land he foretold. Ivelis lists Ramza. So I looked up this term. List is like a nautical term for when the ship is teetering mm, like this. List. Okay, sure, so sure. The, like the ship is listing, right? It's a whole metaphor he's using okay, here. Okay. Ivelis lists Ramza and threatens to founder. Should we fail to write her course, the storm will claim her. And Ramza says, it is you who churn the waves. You orchestrate this entire conflict. Mm. <laughs> Such like a, like a pointed, like, uh, quick retort. It's like he's trying to yeah. build this case and he just like topples the foundation of that case yes, in like yes. one sentence. And then, he, he, you know, Yusilud goes on, change does not come without cost. Revolution requires martyrs, martyrs and we require revolution. The crown is rotten. The nobility corrupt. They must be made to pay. The people deserve their justice. Join us as your once friend Delita has. And Ramza says, you would free the people only to enslave them anew with the demonic power of the stones. And this is where you learn that Isilud has no idea what he's talking about. Yes. Like demonic power. The Zodiac stones are vessels of the gods. So not everybody in the church who, or who is a Knight Templar in the church knows yeah. like what's really going on here. They, they believe that what they're doing is in service of God or... Um, you know, in protection of the people to, you know, destroy the nobility and the corruption of the nobility. So mm -hmm. he believes that the, the ambitions of the church are noble. And there are others in the church who do as well. So it's not everybody is like keen on what's actually going on, right? Yeah. Wygraf ends up showing up here though. Um, last time we saw him, he was being recruited by some mysterious figure out in the... Lenalian oh, yeah, when he went out. Yeah, yeah. To, like, visit his sister's grave. 
and now he's here and he's uh he doesn't seem like just your average thief anymore i mean he wasn't that to begin with but he seems like he's got a big a bunch of knights working for him yeah. now, you know it's not just uh the uh what was the word for it whatever the rebellion people the corpse right? brigade the corpse brigade yeah. yeah he's moved beyond that and he's got some more money behind him it seems now now he's a knight templar there you go and so he's the ready church found him he is ready to get his revenge on Ramza here. Um, but Isil, Isilud escapes from like underground, right? When you fight him there. And he's up now where Wygriff is and they're, they're kidnapping Alma. Alma didn't hide well enough. And we um, told her anytime it's like, hey, you wait here or I don't know. The, the kid, it's, it's imminent that something bad's gonna it's happen. It's gonna, yeah, they're it's not gonna imminent. be able to. She was supposed to take care of Simon and hide, and Ramza gave her the Zodiac Stones he carries. Taurus and I think one other one. Can't remember. Oh, yeah, one. that's true. Well, it was the one from... Uh, I can't remember the 12. Chuchuchalan or the oh, Cardinal yeah, yeah. De La Croix or whatever. The one that he held, I can't remember which one that was. I can't either. Anyways, two of the Zodiac Stones he gives to Alma. Now those have fallen into Isalud's hands, who is mm. kidnapping her, and Wygriff, right? Um, so they're taking her away. You come out and have a fight with Wygriff there. And again, I love the fencing of words that they do in this game. It's yeah. like an element that I just, in particular, I have, I have just a really strong taste for really witty, sharp dialogue, back and forth, yeah. battling of wits and philosophy, where it's like each makes good points, and yeah. it feels like... Um, what an evenly matched yes. battle of giants! Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not it's like, just, wow, this is so cool. Not just in the fighting, but yeah. in the ability to make a case or to argue or debate. Yes, yeah, yeah. I really they're, like they're that. Thinking, and this game is full of that. Um, and so Wygriff and Ramza are doing this back and forth, just like Isolude and Ramza were doing down in the basement area. And I loved this line. This line was really good in War of the Lions. Wygriff, at the end of this, ends up saying. Your envenomed words sucker me, for when at last you yield, as you must, their poison will consume you. It's just beastly line. <laughs> That's great. So it's like he's storing up all the venom just so that he can like throw it back yes. on us once we're once we realize we're wrong, and it'll hurt all the more. Yes, exactly right. We didn't just lose in battle; we lost our philosophy loss. Yes. That's like. Um, that's like the meta, I actually talk about this a little later here, but that's like the meta idea of, of the gods, a battle of the gods, right? Yeah. A battle of ideas and a battle between cultures and philosophies is, uh, in essence, would have been referred to thousands of years ago as a battle of, between the gods, right? Yeah. And which god will prevail. It's not right. just that, you know, the gods were some, like, personification of, like, uh, what would you call it? It's not that the, the people back then would have always lit imagined these stories literally, yeah. but that it was uh, well understood to be the battle of the gods that played out on Earth, and one of the gods will lose, and um, you know the other one will prevail, and that'll be the main god. You yeah, know? right. Everyone's got to worship that god now. And uh, Wygriff is carrying the Ares Zodiac Stone. Mm -hmm. um, Isilud took the Virgo Stone from, from the monastery, so he's, he's, he, he mentions he's carrying that stone. Um, when you win that battle, Wygriff is now mortally wounded. Um, 
it was kind of interesting. I, I really liked the way they represented this in the in the sprite animations and in the graphics. Is this when he leaves and we go outside? Right. So at first yeah, he's, kind of, he's yeah. kind of doing the normal kind of kneeling down yeah. critical stage when you get into critical health mode and they mm -hmm. all go onto their knee. He's kind of doing that, and he's like, okay, this isn't the end. You know, we'll battle again, out, and he yeah. zaps out. But when you go outside, he's like laying down flat oh, and there's face, blood, and yeah. blood's just pulling around yeah, him. Yeah. And Isolude's like, oh my goodness, like yeah. what happened? You were jacked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, oh, just run away. Like, don't worry about me. Yeah. He's, he's basically about to die. And so, mortally wounded, he resorts to using the Ares Arasite. Uh, and he's, he, he speaks to one of these um, Lukavi, sort of like from some other plane or dimension or something. Yeah. And it seems like these stones, when used by somebody with n not good intentions, let's just say That's that. That's the thing, um, yeah, yeah. It, it acts as a conduit for these Lukavi to come into the world yes. and possess that person. So, uh, what, what would you say to this? Uh, that line earlier on from Islud, which is, that the stones aren't demonic, they're, they're the tools of the gods? Yes. Something along those lines. Is it, would I be correct in assuming that they potentially could be used to, for godly purposes? Yes. Okay, so he's not totally wrong when that's, he says that's that. That's what I loved about that. Yeah, okay. Is that, from what we know from Ramza, they are completely evil tools yes. of, or, or demonic tools. Yeah. And so it, when Isulid says that, it's like, you just dismiss it because we've seen what they can do, right? Right. And that's what I love, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but by the end of it, yes. when Rafa uses mm -hmm. it, it just brings her brother back like, to life. It's like, whoa, these... These stones are not inherently evil. Yes, they're powerful, but yes. they're not inherently evil. It depends on who's using it. Depends on the heart of the person using it. Makes perfect sense. So yeah. when the heart of um, somebody using it for bad intentions uses it, it, it acts as a conduit for those Lukavi to sort of like come in and possess that person. And that's what happens with Wygriff here. He gets possessed by Bellius the Gigas. I, I was wondering if you liked this monster design better than the <laughs> Chachulan or whatever. Gosh, I can't remember because I thought... He's got the four arms. A bunch of them now. Maybe like some horns, kind of like, uh, but he's got like four arms basically. Four like Machamp. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Machoke, Machamp, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of those. Pogba. With horns. Um, yeah, no, the, none of them made me laugh the way that the, the, first, first, one the first one did. Yeah. They were all, the monster design is, is good in the game. Um, so anyways, Belias is like summoned through, Wygriff is obviously lost at that point. He's yeah, possessed. yeah, once that happens, you're done. Um, and... Uh, now he's Bellius, and so it's like, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to like go take him out. The stones have been taken away. Um, it's kind of like the tables have really turned here a bit. Yeah. And um, I wanted to get your opinion on this because this is something that a couple of people in Discord have s shared as a sentiment to how they feel about the story of the game. Um, they felt disappointed by the fact that it starts off as this sort of more grounded political fantasy setting oh. and starts to turn into more of into this a supernatural, supernatural, fantastical yeah. sort of thing. And the story well, kind of starts leaning more into that in the latter half. Did you, I just wondered how you felt about that. I mean, that's interesting. I, I didn't mind it at all. I mean, the story just went in a direction, yeah. which I was fine with. Um, 
I, I have often in the past, I could say when I was a lot younger, I used to really want games to not do this kind of thing. Yeah. I, I just wanted a super realistic kind of kind of story. Um, those can work, but because it's a fantasy world, but it's it's playing out just medieval political intrigue, you know. Yeah. But without the supernatural element, I feel like there could be something missing within the story. Because, yeah. like, I've always wanted a Legend of Zelda without any magic or anything, where you, and you kill people. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, Link to the Past, you kill people, technically, <laughs> soldiers. <laughs> but there's always that supernatural. <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing. It's just, as a kid, that's what I wanted. I was like, yeah. enough of this goblin, green blood stuff. It's like, give me the real violence, you know? It's, but as I've gotten older, I, I'm not so concerned with that anymore. Right. I, it doesn't... It, I, I, I try to avoid um, the realism in media that I consume now more than anything. Um, so I, I actually appreciate when stories kind of go in this direction. I think it's fine. I, I will say there are some games, and I don't know that I should give away the name, but there are some games where it has surprised me out of left field when they include something like Aliens or a um, divine magic, evil magic kind of thing. But this game wasn't one of them. This game, I mean, with Final Fantasy, you kind of know what you're getting into. I would, I would almost be suspicious if they made this Final Fantasy game without any crystals or... You already have, like, chemists and mages and stuff. Like, maybe this is why. This is probably a, a good explanation for why I'm not concerned about this. When you start out a game with magic, my initial thinking is this is a game with divine powers mm-hmm. in it. And a lot, of, a lot of places will say, oh, you can explain the magic without the divine, and that's fine, you technically can. But where does that magic come from? And there is some type of cosmology to this world, and that implicates some type of divine figure, generally speaking, if there is like magic, like supernatural. Supernatural is just that, supernatural. Sure. So if you've got the mages doing magic, I don't think this is a big deal. And you had the mages since the very beginning. So. Yeah. One thing that you brought up there reminded me of a quote from C.S. Lewis. Mm. who I, th- I believe he was asked when he made this statement about the nature of his Narnia books and oh, yeah. written for children or something like that, right? Sure, sure. And his response was, when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's a really good quote. It sounds... Like funny worded, but it's yeah. true because nobody despises childhood more than a teenager. Yeah. Right? And it's like Oh, I want to no, be grown up. I don't so like kids stuff. That's kid stuff. That's stupid. I'm better than that now. Yeah, that's like, why I wanted a Legend of Zelda where that. you kill people and <laughs> right. it's very realistic that's what and I was gross thinking. and morbid. Uh, that's exactly it. And as I get older, I'm like, no, the childishness is actually like I welcome it and it's it's a beautiful Thing. There's a reason why fairy tales slowly become children's stories. They didn't start out that way. Yeah. They slowly became that way. And it's because, like, you may abandon this thing for a very long time, but ultimately there's some value in it, and it is to be reinvigorated by the youth, you know? And yeah. I don't know. There's something beautiful about it. So. Yeah. I think that um, the transition from, I think it was like the E3 uh, demo trailer for some possible GameCube Legend of Zelda. Yeah, in like that, 2001. That looked really yeah. grown up and for yeah. the time, like realistic the time, looking yeah. graphics to Wind Waker and just the 
how many people were just uh -huh. so upset by that, yeah, including yeah, me, me. too. Me too. I was. I was <laughs> at like, the time no, man. because I was. Oh, I want this to grow up with me. I was exactly. a teenager by that time, exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. And and so that that's when, you know, I got so excited for like Twilight Princess when that was announced yes. and the way that that looked. Yeah. And now it's like no contest for me that Wind Waker is a much better game than it's Twilight Princess. It's a better Princess. game and it looks better. Not that Twilight Princess is a bad game. I like no, Twilight Princess yeah. a lot, but. Wind Waker is a much better game. Yes, with a more uh, timeless. Yeah, it was aesthetic the test of time. that that it can really stand up for a long time, mm -hmm. like um, basically forever. Yeah. So, anyways, I just noticed that about, uh, or just want to make that point about something you said there. Perfect. But I, I I struggle a little bit, and I'm not saying this to, I'm saying this to get responses from people who feel this way. Okay about the, this sort of shift in the story's focus from political drama to supernatural, like save the world, typical Final Fantasy plot, right? Sure, yeah. That, that transition. I People, do have an issue with that towards the end in chapter four. Yeah. Uh, but at this point in the game, I don't. Yeah. So, I, 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 I'm saying this genuinely as, as like an olive branch. I'm like trying to reach out and understand people. I just don't get why that's a bad thing. Mm. Like, I don't understand how mm. this harms the story. Yeah. If somebody can try to make an explanation of that to me, um, I would like to see that perspective because I, I'm, in order to debate or make a case against a position, I like to steel man that position as much as possible. Sure, yeah. I want the best possible argument yeah. from that side so that I can go, okay, Let's consider all of that and let's let's examine that closer. Mm. And I can't do that currently because I just I can't grasp it's beyond your why you're, you're like Manway. You're like I don't I don't get where these evil people are coming from. <laughs> I, I can't I can't understand a perspective in which to me makes sense why this is an inherently bad thing for to happen in the story. Yeah. Like why is it that it starts off with this sort of premise and then transitions into this one, mm. um, a bad thing. And here's why. Because I would understand it if it was a contrived thing that Final Fantasy plots tend to do at the very freaking end. Oh, like, it's like, like time compression? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, th <laughs> yeah. you thought the story was this all the way up to now. Final Fantasy IX does this in a huge Nine way. IX does it like crazy worse than any game I've like, ever played. Like probably worse than any Final Fantasy game. It's Final just Fantasy like unbelievable what game you're playing by the end. It's like, what the fetch happened, dude? Like, what happened? Okay, have you seen... Have you seen <laughs> The episode of South Park where Cartman goes way too far into the future and they're just bouncing on bubbles and it's like everything's <laughs> just blue bubbles and they're like, well, something got screwed up. And that's what FF9 is like for me. When you're at the end, you're just like, what is going on? Now, this is so beyond reality. I, I, I say that as a enormous fan of Final Fantasy IX. Me too. It's, it might be my favorite one. Game, yeah, it's so right? good. The ideas that mm -hmm. they are bringing out at the end are not like out of bounds for the story. Yeah. The problem is that it's not set up that no, way. No, no. So when you yeah. get there and they just dump this new plot on you in mm -hmm. enormous uh, exposition walls of text, like they do in Chrono Cross and a lot of other games from yeah. that time, it's like this feels contrived 
This feels like a sudden switch in focus that doesn't align with what the story was doing up till now. Hmm. If some might say the original Full Metal Alchemist anime does a similar thing yeah, by the end. Right. So it's if, just like, if where did that come from? If that's the position mm. that people have as to why they feel Final Fantasy Tactics switch is not good for the story, I don't agree. Because mm. this is very slowly and purposefully contextualized all yeah. through chapter two. Yeah. Like the entirety of chapter two is this gradual unveiling of what's going on with the Lukavi and the stones mm -hmm. and the Church of Glabados. And it starts it's, out with a legend they that don't, slowly gets They don't on. take you into the end of the fourth act and mm -hmm. be like, bam, actually the story is this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like it's not like that. It's, it's, it's about, it's before the midway point in the story. We're early in chapter two. We're meeting Cardinal de la Croix. Before that, we meet Mustadio, who has the Taurus stone. Uh, you know, the Barrett Company chasing after him. It, it's, a, it's this slow, over many battles, transition of focus from this is what we thought mm -hmm. was the real problem. It actually goes way deeper than that. There's this huge, terrifying, demonically driven conspiracy mm. that is like way, 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 way worse than Largan Goltana's war. Mm. Like, Delita's gonna go handle that stuff. We need to, to fight the real problem That's here. actually a good point, and that's part of, this is what I was gonna bring up next. If, if you're looking for just the straight political intrigue, medieval times, storyline that is contained within this game. That's Delita's story. Yeah. Um, the issue w with that, and I'm not going to say you can't tell a great story in that time period. You can. You absolutely can. And without any magic and any fun special things, right? But Delita's story is that of, I'm not dealing with the supernatural. I'm going to fix things based on the, po the powers that be, right? Yeah. I'm going to rise to the top and become, you know... <sighs> The person who's like orchestrating the things. revolutionary who yeah who rises up yeah but um, well by the end of the game we see um, how that works out for him but it, but it's not so glorious yeah and it's not so um, it's just a rough story yeah <laughs> it's a rough story to tell uh, whereas with the inclusion of magic you have the possibility of within this gross medieval horrible situation of, of having a, a beautiful story with a beautiful ending, which you can't get. Like watch Game of Thrones, anything. You can't get it just based on the political intrigue alone. Yeah. Now of course there's magic in that one too, I guess. But yeah, there as are far as the political intrigue goes, it's it. like, yeah. hey look, there's a natural law to authoritarian governments <laughs> and for whatever reason, you can't escape it. This, yeah. is, this is how it is. And it could be, here's the prince that shows up and it's everything's okay now. Um, but that's as supernatural as this, I think, because yeah. that never happens. Yeah. So that's my first point, is that this is set up and paid off in a very gradual, natural way, mm -hmm. I feel. I don't feel like it's like something that's sudden or just like slaps you across the face and, well, this is a really big change of direction. Well, I, I, never, I never This isn't that. really where it was working towards. It doesn't feel yeah. that way to me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my first point. My second point is, this is a Final Fantasy game. And Final Fantasy game, to, in order to be in line with the spirit of Final Fantasy, I think it needs to have some motif of the crystals in it. Yeah. And that's what the Aura site is. 
and most Final Fantasy games have some supernatural demon or um, power or mm. something like that, whether it's Cloud of Darkness or the, the Four Fiends or from the original or, I mean, like all of them have that element to it, mm. right? And all of them sort of transition into that being a focus. And so to me, it feels very in line with the, the way the stories of the series are structured in that way. Um, and so I, I'm not sure what people expected when they bought a Final Fantasy game, but this is exactly the sort of thing I would expect from it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I like that. I, it's one of the things I, I like about fantasy is the supernatural parts. Mm. Um, and th which leads into my third point. I don't see how these are like inherently incompatible things. Why political mm. intrigue or a grounded sort of like layer of the plot cannot be married with this supernatural layer that's underneath it. Why those two things are like somehow in, in, they don't go together. Mm. Incongruous, what is the word? Incongruous, whatever, mm. I don't know. <laughs> Incongruent. Incongruent with each other, yeah. thank you. I don't understand why it's like, oh, this is like oil and water for some reason. Yeah. I, just as a kid, it was always, every story has magic. Why can't we get a freaking killer Legend of Zelda? <laughs> like that, it's just, it's just, it's the, it's a, it's a dark desire of the heart. Yeah. For, for people that just want to have their game. Like I like Final Fantasy, but I also want it to tell an, a grown-up story, you know, like yeah. a, a story for a 35-year-old yeah. can play it without all the fun magic fairy tales and stuff. I, I don't agree with that, but I, it's just what people want. People just seem to want that. Well, they think they want that. Because if, if they ever got a really dark Zelda without magic and where you kill people, I don't think it would be as good of a game. But right. hey, you know, any, anything's possible. But people think that they want a really dark, gritty you know, kind of gross game that's very realistic. Sure. And I don't know that um, that's always the case, but you know, some people, I don't know that if people got what they think they wanted that they would still want it. Yeah. In the same way. Sure. Um, the last point I want to make on this is actually, it actually comes from one of our patrons, Dude McGuy. Hmm. And uh, there's a couple, I'm just going to read his quote here, but um, there's a couple other things to this that kind of add to it that I agree with that some other people were discussing too. So he says, Matsuno and his team at Quest do the same demonic possession story in the ogre battle games. Mm -hmm. The people in power turn to demons or evil in a desperate bid to keep their power. And some of those who are powerless resort to the same thing to try to overthrow their oppressors. So you see the powerful turning to like this, this endless sort of pursuit of power, ultimate power, and then those who are desperate to stop them turning to the same means to try to like beat them to it or whatever. Hmm. Um, oh, right, of course. I think the theme being explored is unearned power will corrupt anyone who is seeking power for power's sake. Hmm. Um, sure. And you can kind of look at the aura site or the zodiac stones as like an analog of, of unearned, sorts unearned for power, power unearned yeah. power. Sure. The pursuit, the endless pursuit of power and that that power corrupts those whose hearts are after that power because mm -hmm. that's exactly what the RSI does. 
Those with evil intentions are possessed by Lukavi. Yeah. Those with good intentions are not. So it, it's, 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 it's like a, a fantasy metaphor or analog for that sort of pursuit, blind pursuit of power. And I, again, I just struggle. I'm not saying you're wrong. If you, I'm, I'm willing to hear, this is a book club, right? A video game book club, right? RPG book club, what are you gonna call it? I'm willing to hear the other side on this. It's just, I'm struggling to understand why some people feel this is out of place for the story or it doesn't feel right or something like that. Um, because I have never gotten that sense from it. I feel like it is very, very well like brought in in a gradual way that's natural and convincing and makes sense. So that's my perspective on that, but I'm hoping that that will generate some discussion in the comments and maybe we oh, can look at I that. Think, I think it will. We can look at that and maybe bring it up in our last episode and, hey, and bring up some comments. Um, also, if anybody... Um, it, we'll, we'll do that and this is what we usually do in our final episode. The next episode will be our last episode of yeah. Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah. So um, we'll be looking through the comments. If you have any questions about the story or right, anything yeah. that you want to add to the discussion that we can look at and sort of bring up and, and talk about on the podcast next week, we'll have a whole segment at the end dedicated just to answering comments. Well, and so, what, we'll prioritize the Patreon, Patreon and subscribe posts, star yeah. posts. So if you reach out to us there. If they're relevant, yeah. Because um, I'll have a whole post on Patreon specifically for that. Like, do you have yeah. anything you'd like us to talk about or bring up in the final episode? That'll be going up really soon here. Um, and of course, all the voting and things like that. So that's what we'll prioritize, but we will look at the comments as well. So just so you know, uh, let me know what you think and we'll bring up those perspectives. Uh, in the final episode. Perfect. Okay, um, good stuff. So when when Wygriff leaves as Bellius the Gigas, right, he's, he, he's gone now. Yeah. Um, Elder Simon, kind of with his dying breath, comes out and delivers the scriptures of Germanique into Ramses' hands and admits the fact that he's been turning, you know, a blind eye to the church's corruption. Mm. He's like, you know, this this was like his way of sort of repenting of that because um, the book of Germanique or the scriptures of Germanique contain a secret that the church of Galapagos uh, about the origins of their Christ figure who is Saint, Saint Ajora, Ajora yeah. that um, they do not want anyone to know. <laughs> um, what's interesting to me is that they haven't just burned this book at this point. <laughs> they just avoid the whole problem but yeah. it has been kept and um, now Ramza has it and it contains a secret that the church does not want people to know. Um, and so this is Simon's way of sort of like, you know, repenting for oh, turning sure. a blind eye. He's like, get this yeah. out. You know, tell, use, tell this, to, use <clears throat> this to turn the people against Galapagos, right? Kind of a thing. Um, yeah. Leaving it in our hands to sort of like take them down. Um, so I'm going to pull up a link here. Um, if you go into the menu, I can't remember the, the menu um, option for it, but it's like artifacts or something like that in the War of the Lions, and you go into there and you can read Ramza's notes or his thoughts mm -hmm. about Simon's um, commentary 
because the the book of Germanic, the scriptures of Germanic are writ written in an older Evolution language and script. Yeah, the Ikoku Ikoku language. Yes, yeah. which Ramza cannot read. No, um, but Simon could, and Simon interprets and translates a lot of lines, and so Ramza is sort of <coughs> going through and reading Simon's commentary on the scriptures of Germanic, mm. and he gives a lot of thoughts that are really interesting and that bring up a whole nother rabbit hole of debate. Aside from yeah. what we just did. <laughs> well, I'm excited to jump into it. Um, but before we do that, <laughs> uh, there's another quick scene in Dorder where Ramza yeah. is approached by Merrick. We learn his name is Merrick later. Um, and he sets up an exchange for Alma. He's like, if you bring us the scriptures of Germanique, then you can have your sister back yeah, kind of yeah. thing. We have her. She's going to die unless you give us the scriptures. So they're kind of at a stalemate here. They really want the scriptures back. He needs his sister back. So they're setting up a kind of exchange. Yeah. At Riovanes is uh, the castle. This is where the Duke of Barrington, the Grand Duke of Barrington, it's where he is at. Um, and he's the one who sent Merrick to do this. So, okay, so that's been set up. Our new destination is Riovanes. That's where Alma's been taken. We gotta go rescue her. Um, but he asks, Merrick asks you in the midst of that, have you read the scriptures? Have you read right. what's in there? Do you know what you're holding? And you can have an option to say yes or no. Oh, okay. Um, I, I said no. I said yes. So. He just laughs at you. He's just like, you're an idiot. You have no <laughs> idea what you're holding. I and, like that. And he leaves, and you're just like, I don't know. But then you go into, there is if, a... Uh, some there is some stuff that you that you can uh, yeah read right um, if you say yes, Ramza says something like yes and be assured if anything happens to my sister the the secret's gonna get out. Kind <laughs> nice, of thing, right? that's good. So that's good. yeah, but yeah, I like that fun. option of saying no. I haven't read them because a lot of kids probably didn't. Oh sure, <laughs> and it's like I have no not. idea what's in there. Like, oh, you moron, <laughs> you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So that would then prompt you to go in and like, oh, okay, maybe I should read this. That's a fun yes. uh, game mechanic, actually, to kind of get people to right. explore the story, but you don't have to. Right. right. You can keep playing the game. You don't have to. So, okay. A little background before we read through this whole thing. Um, Germanique was one of the disciples, the 13th disciple of St. Jorah. Um, let's just, like, get to the heart of it. This is... Lifted straight from the New Testament, mm. Saint Ajora is basically Jesus Christ. Right, which is hinted world. at well enough elsewhere. But yes, yeah. and Germanique is is Judas. Yes. He's the one who sold Saint Ajora out to. I think there's um, a whole like sect of the religion that sounds very similar to Pharisee. Oh, nice. Um, in the Holy Jordan Empire. Yeah. Right. Jordan, Juden. <laughs> yeah. Juden is Jew Jewish in um, like. German or something. So but. it's quite obvious. It's like n not even, it's, it's like super obvious yeah. that this is going to be a sort of, um, what do you call it, recontextualization of the Christ story from the New Testament. Yeah. In a similar way that the Gnostics did for both Judas, because there's a whole book of Judas. Yeah, the Gospel of Judas. The yeah. Gospel of Judas mm -hmm. in the in the Nag Hammadi library, right? Yep. Where it's like Judas was actually the one who knew 
the true nature of Jesus Christ that, as the, the monad. The right? gnosis, yeah, yeah. So the, Judas was initiated. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So like there's that whole reinterpretation of that part of the story from the New Testament. But in the Old Testament story of the, in the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. uh, the Gnostics interpreted Jehovah as the demiurge, the material, corrupted, evil god-like right. figure of the material universe who trapped Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and kept gnosis or knowledge from them, right? right? Because he was right. jealous, mm -hmm. because the light of the monad was in Adam and he, he was tricked into breathing that light out of himself and into Adam. So Adam had an element of the higher realm and the monad that, that uh, the Demiurge no longer had. So he trapped them there and kept knowledge from them. And the, that's the whole thing with Gnostics. The word gnosis is mm -hmm. a root word for knowledge. knowledge yeah. And so Greek. the serpent in this interpretation of the story, the serpent is being Satan in the original Old Testament, um, is Jesus who comes to give knowledge, to give the, the, the tree yeah. of knowledge of good and evil, to give gnosis to Adam and Eve. This is obviously why the Christian orthodoxy saw the Gnostics as heretics because they are reinterpreting yes. God as the devil and this sort of thing. It's blasphemy to them, right? Yeah, yeah. The Satan was not considered, Satan necessarily was not considered to be the snake necessarily yeah. until until later on. Yeah. Until probably around the time the Gnosis were like, hey, Jesus is the snake and then <laughs> the Catholics are like, no, Satan's the snake and we're going to kill you. And, yeah. and then it became... Satan's the snake, right? Sure. But but it's not explicitly stated in Genesis that, that it was Satan or not, right? Yeah. So right. that probably gave the Gnosis or the Gnostics some leeway where they're like, hey, we can interpret we this can do what we want with this. And the Gnostics tended to do this. They tended to interpret in many different ways yeah. all of the little bits to be found within the Christian story. Right. Yeah. So there is a very similar sort of Gnostic like mm -hmm. reinterpretation of the New Testament story of Christ and his twelve apostles going on here with St. Ajura. Um, uh, I've had some debates with people in the past as to whether this is offensive or like uh, inconsiderate um, or like just flat out dismissive or um, like harshly critical of Christianity right. generally speaking and of the faith of modern people and whether or not this is out of bounds so to speak. Oh, I see, um, I see. Uh, and having given all the context I just did about the Gnostics and the fact mm. that, that you know they sort of did this, the same thing and they were branded as heretics by the Christian orthodoxy and it was blasphemy and there was this whole like big deal made about it. There's a lot to talk about here and it's going to take a little while to build the case but there's a couple of things to keep in mind that um, add some nuance to this discussion. So I'm just reading from the wiki here, right, to okay. give a, a background on what the scriptures of Germanique are. The scriptures of Germanique, also known as the Germanique scriptures, is a book from Final Fantasy Tactics. It is a biography of Saint Ajora Glabados, who hailed by the corrupt, who is hailed by the corrupt church of Glabados to be the child of the gods, when in fact he was an ordinary man. The book portrays Ajora as he truly was in his original life. It's not clear what Ajora's connection with the Lukavi is. Mm. 
based on what the, is in the scriptures of Germany, right? It's not clearly stated. Um, whether or not Ajora was a disguise uh, used as a host for one of these demons, or whether Ajora's image or Ajora's body was possessed after his death mm, right. is, not, is not clearly stated. Hmm. So we don't know for a fact if Ajora was a Lukavi demon the whole time or not. That's something to keep in mind in all of this. We don't know that. All we do know is that from Germanique's perspective, the man who wrote this book, he was an ordinary man, not a child of the gods. So it's a reinterpretation. Jesus was not the son of God sort right. of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Would be the analog there, I guess, or the metaphor. Let's just get straight into what Rams' thoughts are on this. Okay. So this is, can be seen in the game, but this is kind of long. Hang in there with me. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff to break down here. I opened the scriptures of Germanique entrusted to me by Elder Simon and began to leaf through the pages. The words before my eyes were writ in a holy script of the ancients. Several illustrations were scattered throughout, but many pages were missing or damaged, and the script was exceedingly difficult to decipher. I was deeply curious as to what knowledge lay within. Is this where he says the ink was wet? Yeah. I did read this. Okay, I read so you this have whole read thing. this thing? I read this okay. whole thing. I didn't realize that, okay. As I was turning pages, faintly penned letters in modern Evolusian script occasionally caught my eye. Notes of an explanatory nature uh, had been added here and there throughout the book. I wondered who might have written them. Judging by the faded ink, some entries were more than a decade old, while others seemed to have been penned only in the last few days. As I touched my finger to them, the writing smeared. The ink had yet to fully dry. Every note was written in the, by the same hand, Elder Simons. I suddenly realized he must have devoted a significant portion of his life to deciphering these scriptures line by painstaking line. This was probably, in, in a way, like the life work of Elder Simon was trying oh, to yeah. translate and interpret the scriptures of Germany. Hmm. I relied heavily on his fragmentary notes as I continued reading. So another thing to keep in mind. Many of the pages are damaged or missing. And he's relying on fragmentary notes of Simon yeah. to get the idea of what this text says. <laughs> right, assuming that it's correctly translated and all Exactly. That. Yeah. That's another thing to keep in mind in all this, right? Apparently the Holy Script had been recorded by Germanique, a disciple of Saint Ajora. Germanique, the name struck a familiar chord, half-forgotten history lessons rose unbidden in my mind. So he would have grown up like everybody else in Ivelisse, mm. a member of the Church of Glavidos. It's the dominant religion of, of the kingdom and would have been taught these things, I would assume, in a seminary-like class or something like that, yeah, right? sure. the religion courses. Um, and then I remembered, Germanique was the disciple who had betrayed his master, turning him over to the Holy Jordan Empire. I was astounded that a Librum penned by the same Germanique for my history lessons now rested in my very hands. I could hardly contain myself as I turned the pages, and then I was assaulted by a shock far greater than the realization that I held a priceless historical artifact. Originally, I had thought the book to be no more than a collection of St. Ajora's teachings as recorded by Germanique. How unprepared I was to learn what it truly contained. The tame, or the tome, served as an account of St. Ajora's life. The St. Ajora described within was of a considerably different nature 
than the man about whom we have all been taught. I, I mean, I could see this uh, in, in real life being someone reading the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm -hmm. and then coming across the Gospel of Judas or something right, like that, on. and being like, what? <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is not at all the Jesus they said here or that I was taught growing up. Who wrote this? Who right. actually like wrote this? Did Judas actually write this? Right? You start to get into which the Gospel of Judas was written around like two, three hundred A.D. Yeah, just so everyone knows. Yeah, right. It, <laughs> it was written actually well, been, well after the point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it wouldn't have been written by Judas. In fact, it's likely that none of Christ's um, apostles actually were very good at writing. Yeah, and actually, yeah. Anyways. I had always known that St. Ajora was no ordinary mortal. My faith in the Church of Glabidos was not as profoundly complete as that of my Lord Brother Zalbag. So apparently Zalbag is very devout. Mm. Uh, I, I guess I hadn't seen that very in his religious. character from the dialogue yet, but mm. here, according to Ramza, he is. I thought that was interesting. Yet I did believe that Saint Ajora was a child of the gods, descended from the heavens to deliver humanity from its self-inflicted chaos. Or should I say, I had believed. All I had thought immutable was shattered upon reading the scriptures. So he's pretty much taking this account and being like, I fully believe this one. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, a, that's kind of a funny, a funny Which uh, thing to do. Which is perhaps a mistake to make. You don't know if Germanique is lying or not. But the right. fact that the church has hidden it gives some credence to it. It's like they, they don't want people to think that this is real. Yes. I, I, so think, I think the idea of this book comes from whatever you have in your head when you mention something like the vault beneath the Vatican. Yes. Right? Yes. And the fact that nobody knows everything that's down there makes your mind kind of speculate yes. as to, oh, they must be hiding something. What could they be hiding? <laughs> oh, there's a book that they're hiding that says that they're wrong or something. Right? Sure. Like, it's it's a, a creative person will take that and make something like this out of it. Yeah. St. Ajora's birth came in the midst of a golden age of technology when airships yet plied the skies. He was born in Lazalia in the city of Bervenia. Moments after his birth, he rose to his feet, so this is a freaking newborn infant, rose to his feet and approached a well. Upon reaching its base, words of prophecy poured forth from his infant lips, a calamity shall soon befall this well. Seal it up at once, that none may drink of it. So just know that this is, Ramza right now is accounting what he'd been taught about Ajora. Okay, this right. is not the Germanique version. Mm. He's, he's recounting for the sake of his readers later on, this is what I always I had been told, told about Ajora. So Ajora, as a barely born infant, speaks mm -hmm. and says, seal up this well. It's, people are going to die if they drink this water, right? Some days later, the Black Death visited the town of Brunevia. And all those who drank the well's tainted water succumbed to the plague and perished. Only those families who heeded the prophetic words of St. Ajora were spared from death and malady. After the incident with the well, the people came to revere St. Ajora as a portent of miracle and a child of the gods. But it was not until he reached the age of 20 that St. Ajora would become the savior of Ivelisse and take his place among the gods in paradise. Ivelisse was not always as united as it is today. See, that was kind of, well, it's kind of funny because he says that in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what he really means is all the provinces were yes, different kingdoms at that time. We're all separated, yeah. Uh, long ago, the realm was divided into seven kingdoms. 
Fovoham, Lionel, Limberry, Lazalia, Galion, Zeltania, and Mulund. Um, so those are the different provinces of Ibelis now, right? Each warred with the others in a never-ending struggle to expand its own territory. The conflict had continued for centuries until an ambitious young king rose to power in Mulund. This young monarch dreamt of uniting all of Ivalice under his hand. But the road to victory was a difficult and dangerous one. The king turned to ancient tomes and to the dark magics found within, summoning a demon from the netherworld to do his bidding. But once unleashed, the demon slew the king and set out to destroy the very world itself. To combat this monstrosity, a great hero set out on a quest. Together with his twelve disciples, he collected the zodiac stones that had been scattered throughout the world, and the zodiac braves were born again. The zodiac braves soon defeated the creature's minions and banished the demon back to its infernal plane. For this, becoming known as, for this, becoming known as the saviors of our world, the story is now a well-known legend. The zodiac braves have since appeared whenever the world balanced on the brink of catastrophe, only to vanish just as quickly once the crisis had been averted. Similar catastrophe threatened the world in the time of Saint Ajora. The king of Limberry summoned a demon in hopes of seizing control of all of Ivalice, and once again plunged the world into chaos. And just as in the legend, Saint Ajora collected the twelve zodiac stones, and once again the zodiac braves rose to defeat the marauding demon. However, the sovereigns of any age have small tolerance for the interference of well-meaning heroes. Fearing the charismatic saint's growing influence, the Holy Jordan Empire dispatched soldiers to capture him and his devoted followers. Pharism was the prevalent religion in that day. Pharism, nice. Yes, which is clearly Pharisee, the Pharisees, yeah. right? Um, and its priests feared Ajora's growing influence. Ultimately, Germanique, the 13th disciple, was tempted by sordid coin, offering vital information that led to the, his master's capture. This is clearly Judas. Yeah. Right. The saint was executed upon the gallows of Golgolada soon after. <laughs> That's like, if this all wasn't on point enough, that. That boom. right there just nails it of straight course, in. Golgotha being yes. the, the place of the skull, the hill where Christ was crucified. Yeah. Right. That's so great. It, That's great. it's not, there's no attempt here to hide that this is obviously some yeah. sort of metaphor, analog, whatever. Yes, clearly. To the New Testament Christ yeah. story. That's out of the way. That can't be uh, debated at all. <laughs> <laughs> but lest we forget, Saint Ajora was a child of the gods. The wrath of the heavens was swift and terrible immediately following the execution. Malone, the center of Ferris teaching was visited by a terrible cataclysm and sank into the sea. Saint Ajora then ascended to paradise to take his rightful place among the gods. This was the legend with which I was familiar, the very same tale told to every child of Ivalice. But the Saint Ajora described within the scriptures of Germanique was a different man altogether. Ajora was no child of the gods. He was a mere mortal, no more divine than you or I. He was a revolutionary who fought to realize his own ambitions. He was no lover of peace, no hero who would sacrifice himself for the good of humanity. Germanique wrote this of him. As the founder of a new religion with a rising number of followers, Ajora was seen as no more than a nuisance to the empire. But Ajora was apparently more than just a religious founder. He was a saboteur who infiltrated enemy states to collect information and sow disorder. Ajora was a spy dispatched to the Holy Jordan Empire by a rival state. 
whatever he claimed to be, it was, the f it was fact that the empire began to fear this upstart's growing influence. Germany was employed to collect evidence that would allow the empire to arrest Ajora as a spy. The 13th disciple was in reality no more than the, the empire's instrument in a play to uncover Ajora's true intentions. It seems that Ajora indeed attempted to reassemble the Zodiac Braves. Germany confirmed it in his writings that Ajora even discovered some of the stones, but what was his purpose in seeking them? I do not know if the young king of Limberry actually summoned a demon. At the very least, I have failed to encounter even a single line within the scriptures that records the event. Yet catastrophe did indeed befall Malund at the time of Ajora's death. According to the scriptures, the bulk of the city sank into the sea. The footnotes provided further enlightenment. They expressed a different view, no doubt the personal opinion of Elder Simon. So the rest of this is directly like Simon's writings in the book. Although many spoke of their existence, none had ever set eyes upon these scriptures of Germanique. Some might say they are fraudulent, written with the sole purpose of discrediting Saint Ajora, but I know this tome to be authentic. I don't know how he knows that. I wish he would have explained that. That would have been interesting to read more about. It just looks, <laughs> it looks authentic. When I served as an inquisitor for the church, many others in the holy office feared the existence of this work, and the same is no doubt true for the high confessor. They were all fearful of these writings, for everything contained in them is fact. I mean, you could say it's, they feared them. Like, yeah. I saw that fear. I saw the way they talked about it and everything. But how do you know it's fact, right? right. Like, how do you know that? After St. Ajora's death, the church, which was capitalized on, the, on his considerable influence to seize power for itself. Sorry, let me read that again. After St. Ajora's death, the church, which has capitalized on his considerable influence to seize power for itself, had only one task, to conceal his true nature as a human being. This one fact has to be erased from the annals of history. They needed to ensure that St. Ajora be remembered as a child of the gods. Their use of the Zodiac Braves, a legend believed throughout Ivelisse, was a stroke of genius. It was a simple feat to convince the people that St. Ajora had led the Zodiac Braves to defeat a demon, a demon that never existed. I realize now that I had lost my faith the moment I began to read these scriptures, and yet I feel no sorrow. Thinking back, I know now, or I now know that my desire to know the truth was stronger than my faith had ever been. But have I committed but I have committed one great sin. I failed to condemn the church for lying to our flock all these years, and why? I knew that if I were to share this book with the world, my precious library would be taken from me. And to me, there could be no pain greater, for this library is the only means of slaking my endless thirst for knowledge. My curiosity eclipsed my will to do what was right. So that is the entry. Nice. Let me get some thoughts from you because I've been sure. talking forever. Well, just reading that straight. No, it's clearly... Uh, so I want to talk a little bit to the, the broader idea that there would be some contentious issues with sure. this, right? Yeah. Because I read this kind of thing and I don't feel like it's very contentious. But um, there is a sensitivity, I think, that people have to their own culture um, where they will read into things. Like, let's say uh, people who are, like, if somebody is... Um, Native American, like let's take the book Twilight, for example. I actually 
I like the book. I read the book. It's actually a good book. It's, I think it's pretty well written. It's actually it's a, it's a good book. I, I don't mind Twilight <laughs> at all. And it helps me learn languages because it's translated into a ton of different languages. But I read it in Spanish. And okay. at least the Spanish translation, you know, I've got no qualms with it. But um, Stephanie Meyer decides to tell a story about the Quileute. I think that's how you pronounce it. I've never said that word out loud. The Quileute uh, Native American tribe in northeastern Wisconsin, or Washington, yeah. Washington. And um, she kind of throws some, she takes some general mythology that may be more or less correct according to the actual tradition, but she kind of inserts things in it and was like, ooh, what if the skinwalkers were werewolves or however that goes. I don't, I don't know anything about Quileute, um, you know, mythology, mythology but... Yeah. How does somebody who is part of that tradition, who is a Native American of, of Eastern Washington, and hears someone not of their culture reinterpret their story and tell it back to them by, by changing things and messing with things oh, and then delivering it and giving it to them, they're going to feel like offended, right? They're sure. going to be like, that's, that's not what our thing is, and this is weird, and you got this wrong, and that's just stupid, and why would you even mention this, and this is irrelevant, and where'd you get this stuff from? Like, this is totally wrong, yeah. right? And and to, um, th there is, I don't know that it's huge, but there is at least a small amount of backlash to Stephanie Meyer's book in including that, you know, group of people, uh, because it was offensive. Well, it's not very often that the Western white Christians um, get a taste, a taste of their own medicine. <laughs> <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. It's not very often that we are exposed to someone else from Japan or anywhere else reinterpreting our story in a kind of interesting and unique way, like sure. like this, and us being like, "What? You can't do that! I'm up in arms. That's wrong." And it's like it's that's what I feel like, at least to some degree, and some people may disagree with that analysis, and that's fine. Uh, the, uh, different people will have different reasons for why they don't like, like this, this. Yeah. but I feel like there would be some innate knee-jerk reaction to, this is the culture I grew up in, and and they're clearly taking my, my culture and twisting it to fit some fantasy narrative, and I don't know how I feel about that. Like, yeah. that's how most people would, I'm, would, their internal dialogue would say something like, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. But when you're in Japan, and there have been lots of books written about the, about the Japanese from the perspective of America or England or Portugal or sure. wherever, and then the Japanese people thinking, eh, they got our story wrong, right? And yeah. eh, I don't know how I feel about them taking our beliefs and twisting it like that. I don't know that's, how I feel about uh, that. That's a lot, or some of the, the bulk of the criticism. There wasn't like a ton of criticism for Shogun, but when yeah, I read Shogun, that to some was, degree, some of that was the people in well, Japan. This, this white man, taking the story yeah. and uh, like interpreting it in a way right. that is not like accurate to how we feel about our own culture, right? And is that to say that white people can never write books about Japan? No, it's just that there is, there's gonna be pushback and, and people are gonna say, yeah, I don't know about and that, you got that wrong. it's important to consider his perspective may lack some of the nuance Oh yeah, of not of having been raised like in that culture in exactly, and, exactly. And you, you should know but that. It, right? But at the same time, you can get some level of an outsider's perspective into a thing, sure. right? Like there is still some value there. It's just don't take it as gospel, right? sure, because yeah. it was written by an outsider. Yeah. So when we, as it, as it relates to this story, we've got somebody, an artist in Japan, saying reading the Christian tradition as well as apparently some critiques of it, and saying, hey. 
this fits a story that I'm doing. Yeah. This would be kind of cool, you know? And yeah. and he does it. And it's not I just I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not that big of a deal. It really yeah. isn't. It's it's an artist taking a thing and saying, "Ooh, what if we did this to it?" and then threw it into my fantasy world and that way people would realize that it's similar but not the same and it's cool art. It's an interesting story. It'll get yeah. people to think. It's a it's a way of like presenting like a general philosophy. And and it's not like he's saying this is true. He's not saying Jesus was a man. He's just like throwing this idea out there that's just like, hey, let's play with what if Jesus was a man. The same way that we're like, hey, what yes. if the Shinigami were like the actual Satan devils? Or what if... Um, I'm going to tell a story about Amaterasu and how he's like this great early god of Japanese folklore and I'm going to twist his story to kind of make it interesting and hey, isn't that cool? It's not really that different. So I feel like that's what he's doing here. And as an artist, artists just tend to do that. They tend to take things in their world and reshape them and represent them in an interesting way. It doesn't mean, hey, you're wrong. Hey, I'm right. It's like, hey, isn't this interesting? And it is to his credit, it is very interesting to retake some element of culture and put it in a different way so that people see it in a different light. But it doesn't mean that you're saying anything. You're not casting a judgment. You're not telling anyone they're wrong. You're yes. just representing something. Represent, that's what the word represent means. And that's what art is. It's representations of things. Yes. In this case, he took a little bit of some Western European culture and represented it in a different way within his game. And that may make you feel uncomfortable, but... It's what artists do, and it's what Western Europeans have done to other cultures many, 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 yeah. many, many, many times. And so maybe just don't be too, don't avoid that knee-jerk reaction of like I'm offended or anything like that. Because this, I, I don't think it's a big deal, and I don't think it's what he wanted to do. And Japanese people find Western culture fascinating. Yes. They find it so fascinating. Yes. You, you watch anime and things, and they're constantly putting in these Western culture ideas and philosophies and religion stuff. And it's just like they find it fascinating, and they're kind of trying to make sense of it and represent it in ways that they can understand better. And, you know, this is just part of that. That's all Xenogears was. Yes. was Takahashi <laughs> taking Western philosophy and, yes, yes. and psychoanalysis. And, and religion. And, and religion um, and sort of trying to represent or represent yeah. that in this sort of mythology that he he sort of like manipulated the and details. He, he and injected some things in. Yeah, and put some of himself into it. Right. Represented it as a different thing. As a fictional different thing. And, and every, every different culture that has a stake in what Takahashi represented or Mitsuda or anybody in what has been represented, you can pick that thing apart. You can take the artist's representation and everyone the people from this place can take it apart here the christians can take it here the the maybe people from australia don't like it maybe some of the jewish people didn't like some of it maybe some people in europe there's all people all over the place you can take apart all the things that were presented represented within this work of art uh but i think you would do a better service to yourself and it'd be a little more valuable to take a step back and appreciate the art for what it is yeah. as opposed to everyone stepping in and taking it out till you you're left with a perfectly unoffensive piece of art which i don't think exists no not, no such thing <laughs> it's exists. no it's not <laughs> art how boring is that cuz <laughs> art that that's art confined to a very small border of what's allowed and it's like yeah. artists don't do that and it's artists not, step out of bounds and and you might not like Exactly. It's, it doesn't it's meant evoke, to be provocative. It doesn't provoke emotions. It doesn't evoke emotions, I guess. It doesn't 
do anything. It's it's not even art at that point. It's just a thing that's bland and boring that no one's offended by and that everyone can just walk by and not care about. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get pushback for saying that or not. Uh, I'm open to maybe that being wrong. I just kind of thought of it. But I think there's some value to that. I think that's I, there's at least probably... If it's not... I think that you can be provocative without the idea of necessarily writing something that's for sure going to like offend people or be edgy or something. Right. But rather just to get people to think about something that they take for granted mm. in a different light. To challenge what they think about it. And sometimes that will lead to being uh, yeah. people being offended. Well, but that may not be like a malicious purpose of the art. And that's what matters, yes. right? I think that's what matters. Yes. Is what what was the intent? Was it was it, was it malicious, or are Japanese people just fascinated by Western culture and yeah. they're using it to build their own stories? Right. Is that malicious? No, no. But a funny thing about representation. This is just the general idea. Like representation is just that representation, right? And so a representation is like a metaphor. Like if I'm trying to explain a concept and you're not getting it, I might use a metaphor. But I'll take um, like, oh, it's like a rock, you know, and the rock's kind of hard, but it like can break and now you have two rocks, right? But yeah. what, it was one rock, now it's two rocks. Did you add? No, it's still the same mass, but it's two things now. Yeah. Well, I'm using a rock as a metaphor to explain a concept, right? But I'm representing the concept. I'm saying, take what I have and project, take your idea of this thing I'm explaining to you and proje project it onto this rock. Now pretend the rock is the thing. And some people are going to say, they'll point out the differences. And they'll yeah. say, but that rock's not the thing, that's just a rock. The thing is something else. But 90% of people will say, ah, that's close enough. Yeah. I'm willing to abide by this, that's close enough. I'm not offended by your representation and I'll accept this metaphor yeah. to see where you're going with it, right? But some people will just look at that and say, what? You know, faith isn't like a seed, it's <laughs> that seeds are things you put in the ground. I'm offended, you know, but it's like, no. Um, a metaphor is a representation, and, uh, and and to some degree, it's it's art in that sense too. But the representation, because you can't always just present things. You always have to represent. Yeah. You can't present fact because people just don't see the same way. Yeah. You have to say, well, it's like this, and then you have to do a representation into a metaphor sure. in some way. That's kind of just how our brains work, right? Because we don't see the objective world the way we think we do. And so sometimes in order to get someone to see your point, you have to do that. But a lot of times when you show the metaphor, people won't accept it. And that's what I mean when I say um, being offended or not, right? Yeah. If, if uh, art is offensive, all art has to be offensive in some way to someone. <laughs> yes. I, that's more or less what I mean. All art is a representation um, that some people will look at and not accept as, as proper. They'll metaphor. Say, this metaphor is not right. You know, yeah. the uh, uh, a building isn't like a cake. They're just they're too different. Buildings and cakes are too different. They're way too different. I don't accept the metaphor, right? Yeah. And so that's going to happen to some percentage of people. And now, if you're really good and speak to a really broad audience, you can get 99% of people to buy into your metaphor, right? Yeah. But there will always be people who are like, I just can't follow you there, and I don't like it. And, and I don't agree with you. I don't think you, you represented it properly with your metaphor. And sometimes, often, they have a point, and that's yeah. fine. You can go to Mitsuda and say, you know, Sinajor's Ma not... Matsuno, by the way. Sorry, Matsuno. Yeah. Matsuno. Oh, Mitsuda's the musician. The okay. music, yeah, the music. You, a lot, some people could go up to Matsuno and say, you know, Sinajor and Jesus have some very distinct differences in, in your representation. I just want to talk to you about that. Yeah. And he'll, he'll be like... I know, <laughs> I know, dude. <laughs> like, I'm just telling a story, you know? Yeah. 
and and you you can bring it up to him, but that's the response that you'll get, and uh, along with most people. Um, and I think the issue is in this case, if a lot of people took issue with Matsuno's metaphor, um, that would mean that his metaphor didn't have the the solidest footing. But it is still a metaphor in the end, right? So if only fifty percent of the people look at your metaphor and say, "I'll keep playing the game." Or how many people look at it and say, I'm done with your game now because yeah. that metaphor didn't work and it hurt my mind, right? Um, and that's probably not a great representation for everybody listening either. But um, I feel like most of, I feel like that will be the issue. And when it's like 50-50, it's like, okay, maybe the metaphor needed a little bit of work, right? Yeah. But that I don't think you can uh, apply malicious intent based on the, your rejectance of a metaphor. Yeah, there you go. I think that that is exceptionally well, well put. And it is more or less the crux of my argument in those debates that I had. Yeah. And it led into this. Mm. I find it incredibly presumptuous to the point of being offensive to apply the intent of the artist for I, them yes. by saying this is hateful, like dismissive rhetoric that is, um, uh, you know, it's like persecuting Christians or something like that. It's, it's, yes, yes. it's hateful to Christians. It is like some sort of like spit in the face to them that their, their belief, that their faith is like obviously wrong or something. Mm -hmm. How do you know that that's the intent? Right. To, I mean, to me it seems obvious that the artist's intent is just to take a real life thing change it to fit a story he's writing and use it as a basis. Which is what everyone does. Which doesn't does. necessarily mean they're trying to say something about the real world thing. Right, it was just an element. What, where are you getting that from? Well, and even if he is, he's, so what? he's not Christian. So what? He's not a Christian, <laughs> right? So of course he doesn't believe Jesus was the son of God. Otherwise, he'd be a Christian. Yes. He's not a Christian. Not everyone has to be a Christian. Exactly. It's okay for people to not be Christian and to look at that story and say, oh, here's a story about a dude who went around and caused an uprising or whatever. And it's like, okay, that, of course that's how he sees it because he's not a Christian. Yes. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yes. It's okay. If, so, if he accepted Jesus as the Son of God, he would be a Christian. And, yes. and Japanese people, like I think 2% of people in Japan are Christian. It's very, very low. Right. If you're playing Japanese games, don't expect that they that they're Christians who made you game. Christian <laughs> mythology, and that they're going to accept it as in their representation, right? They're going to represent it in their own way, which is not a Christian perspective. Based on their but historical okay. experience exactly. with foreigners coming in with their religions, yes, <laughs> and the way that that all went down. And we're not going to do a whole diatribe on no, the history of Japan with religion, but because there's stuff both ways was, on that. It was some bad things happened both ways. Both on that ways. One. Both ways. Um, that's not the point of this. <laughs> the point is, first of all, it's presumptuous to say that that is his intent. That that was the intent, if, yeah. You, I, I can see why you might read it that way, but if you're going to ascribe that intent to him, you need something more solid than just, look at the story, it's obvious that it's hateful. It's obviously Go Jesus. find me an no, article so or an interview where he says, I hate Christians and that's why I put this in the story and I'll believe you. Yes, yes. I have not had anyone been go. able to show me that yet. Right. So if you can show me that, I will start to give more credence to the idea that it could be um, offensive. I don't think it is. I don't think that was his intention. Even if it was, I would not be personally offended by it as a Christian mm. because my next point is, I, gr I grew up, I, we said, mentioned this earlier in the podcast, mm. reading scripture, 
Christian James, believing yeah. in that. Um, I, I don't know how personal I want to get on this, but there's, there's an element to this that another reason why I find this story not to be like offensive or blasphemous or something like that mm. is because I had a similar experience right. where I read material that I believed or felt was hidden from me mm. by people who I trusted or believed were telling me the truth. And that recontextualization of the story I grew up hearing changed my conclusions about what I believed. Now, the interesting part about that and the mm. other side of the coin on this is that I was purposefully getting this information from sources in the church. Mm. I was not trying to read those who were looking to discredit the church. I was reading from those who were sharing this information, historians of the church, who mm. still were faithful members of it. Right. So their conclusions of this information and their commentary on it in the book that they wrote that I was reading was clearly different from mine. So it's mm. not like my conclusion is the only one to come to. But I had a similar experience to what Ramza is experiencing here. And so I relate to that experience of you're feeling like your whole, the whole context of what you believe is flipped entirely. And it's like, how do I reconcile this? And I spent pretty close to a decade in prayer and study, trying to reconcile that, and came to the conclusions that I did, and I'm at peace with that now. So, there's a whole element of that in the story of Final Fantasy Tactics that speaks to me, and that I think is important to think about. It's, it's, it's something that the artist is like putting in here, and you, and you, you consider that, and you think about it, and it can mm. solidify your positions one way or the other, depending on how you choose to think and study. <laughs> To, to discuss that, right? right? The world is not black and white like this. So, I grew up uh, in, partly, for four years in like um, elementary school age in Denver, Colorado. Mm. Um, there's only one other place I've ever lived outside of Denver. It's kind of interesting the way that like certain cities you've lived in, like the culture that develops yeah. around them. Um, it may be a little different now, but at the time that I lived in both Las Vegas and in Denver, there was like really, really strong evangelical yes. uh, roots there. Yeah. Like really strong. A lot of people were religious, were Christian, and were particularly like non-denominational evangelical Christians. It's like there were tons of churches. There are churches everywhere. Yeah. Every freaking corner you turn is another freaking church which was not my experience in other places I've lived. Well, here it's predominantly Mormon, of course, in Utah. But, in Utah, yeah. Um, other places I've lived, it's, it's not quite the same in terms of like the presence of strong evangelical presence. Yeah. Um, so we had neighbors across the street when I lived there who were really devout evangelicals. And they, the kids who were our friends were so concerned about blasphemy. Mm -hmm. I mean, to a level that I always was like, I, I had a hard time understanding as a yeah. child. Where they wouldn't like read Harry Potter. No, or, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And if we were out mm -hmm. with other friends playing like a, a game, imaginary game of like wizards and yeah. knights and swords and sorcery, which we would mm -hmm. do sometimes. We, 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 uh, we went like to Disney the- That's like Disney level stuff. Yeah. But I, I get you. We went, we went to dismissive. like the Renaissance Festival and got wooden swords and shields. Armor and capes and mm. staves, and we were out there either doing like 
it probably wasn't Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings wasn't out yet. The movies, Because yeah. that wasn't until we moved to Phoenix where but that really still, just popular. like Snow White or like where you're battling dragons and Yeah, and I believe and stuff, in particular like, Harry Potter, no, no, no. the books were out. Sleeping Beauty is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Anyways, we were out there doing yeah, that the kind of game and they were not allowed to play with us in, mm. in this game because of this fear of witchcraft and wow. just this like... Yeah. This strict like, I knew people like that in avoidance Denver, yeah. of anything resembling witchcraft or devilry or anything like that, mm-hmm. even just even just children playing a game. Yeah. And I was so dumbfounded by mm-hmm. this. And and like they they came with sidewalk chalk because they were outside as we were playing, but they yeah. felt excluded by us because we wouldn't stop playing our game <laughs> to allow them to play with us. Yeah. And they were using sidewalk chalk to draw crying faces in my driveway. Like, uh, asking us to repent and, like, please, please don't do this. Your souls, How like, old? kind of a thing. Probably, like, like 10 or? eight or ten years old or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so there is a certain level that I feel people are sensitive to that, that to me, and I, I don't say this to try to offend anybody, but just my observation or my perspective on it. Mm. It shows a real lack of confidence in what you believe. Oh, if sure. you are the, incapable the yeah. of grappling with any exposure to mm. it. Because to me, that's more like the parents, like so right. afraid their children will be taken away or deceived or like they can't handle it. Mm. It's like... Really, that that leads me to believe that there's like this this real lack of strong confidence in what they really believe. They don't really believe it as strongly as they think they do. Because hmm. if you were truly confident in what you believed, you'd be able to look at anything and see, yeah, the, there's the faults here and here and whatever, and like I'm I'm solid. But I'm you good. take it as a whole. I, I'm not offended yeah. by this because right. I know that it's not real or it's not true or whatever. Mm. Right, and and so, to me, there's there's a certain sense that I wonder if people who are super offended by this, mm. and fear it as blasphemy or whatever, um, why do you struggle to look at this and be like, eh, it's a fantasy story, and even if it is hateful, whatever, I'm mm. convicted in what I believe, and mm. it doesn't bother me. Right. That's kind of how I was, like, growing up. It was like, I heard a lot of rhetoric that was against my religion growing up all the time. Mm. And it never offended me or bothered me because I was just so convinced in what I believed. And so I'd listen to it. My friends would talk to me. I'd talk to them. Uh, They would say all kinds of nasty things about what I believed. And I was like, actually, no, we don't believe that. And this is this. And I'd be able to discuss it. And I wasn't, like, offended by it. So... I don't know. We probably can't spend forever talking about this. I, I feel like we've done a good... But there is one other side to it I wanted to touch okay, on. Okay, go for it. The other side is from an artistic perspective. So we've, we've, <laughs> we've gone on a lot about the, you know, if, you're, if you don't like this because it offends your sensibilities as a Christian or a Christian-descended Westerner, whatever. Okay, fine. We've, we've done a pretty good job of okay. t- addressing that. And I'm not saying we're right, you're wrong. I'm just saying that... We've talked about it, and if you have any other thoughts, then throw them at us. If you feel like we've rep- misrepresented, or if our metaphor misrepresented your idea <laughs> and you want to pick that the way that, you know. Sure. Um, fair enough. Go ahead. But 
I think we can talk about the artistic merits of being so overt in your analogies sure. of things, right? Which is purely what Xenogears was. Like the whole <laughs> game was that. <laughs> it was like so overt. Um, <laughs> with this, where it's like, um, like really the Ferrism, you couldn't have you couldn't have come up with a more creative. Really, Golgada, or what was it called? Golgada, I think. Golgada. You, you couldn't have like been a little bit more um, nuanced, or what's the tried word? Tried to a separate little, it a little yeah, more try, from the it, source. You, you could have been a little less like didactic and straight about exactly what you're addressing. Hey guys, this is Jesus. <laughs> like oh, oh, on the nose. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's too on the nose. It's a little too on the nose, um, and. From an artistic perspective, sometimes analogies that are so blatantly lifted from reality and are not so much creatively metaphorized, creatively represented in a creative enough way, you can criticize the creativity there. Yeah, you could say, and say and it maybe, maybe feels some a little people, lazy or... Yeah, or it's like, couldn't you have come up with something that maybe loosely resembled Christ? Like, uh, like with The Matrix, Neo... That's G he's Jesus. Yeah. Like that is a Christian story. That whole movie is a Christian story. Most people probably don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> right? And people who went to church every Sunday may not realize that Neo is a Christ figure in a story. Yeah. Same thing with Harry Potter. Like yeah. Harry Potter and or Star Wars. Like that is a Christian story. But a lot of people may go to church and see these well, not the new Star Wars, I guess, but you know, the general <laughs> generally speaking, the original yeah. trilogy. Um, a lot of people will go and watch these and not realize. But that's because the the artistic value of the reinterpretation would would be higher, in yeah, my it's, opinion. It's like right? the, the lines are blurred enough to where it's not an on-the-nose It's not analogy. so on-the-nose. Yeah. That's more, uh, people would have a greater appreciation for the metaphor from an artistic perspective if it did something more along those lines. Now, the issue with this game, it's targeting 15-year-olds, like it's difficult to not be on the nose and still get a, a a general type of like idea across, right? Like, you you want to be a little bit more direct in your metaphor um, if you're going for a younger audience, right? But Harry Potter didn't quite do that. Um, and in some ways, it was purposely concealed. But J.K. Rowling's come out and said specifically, yeah, the Christian story is influenced Harry sure. Potter like greatly and clear obviously I mean yeah. we don't need to go into spoilers right. but it's it's pretty obvious um, but I feel like um, there's some artistic criticism to be had there it maybe could have been a little bit more hidden a little more veiled um, that may not have appeased the um, hardcore Christian people who are offended by it but at the very least it would feel better to me where I wouldn't laugh while I'm reading it yeah where I wouldn't be like <laughs> This is Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> that criticism, I think, is probably a little more um, warranted. What would the word be? It's a little more astute, a little more... Yeah. It's like... you Correct, that I can say, yeah, I can, I can see that. Maybe he opened himself up a little bit yeah. to a, a little bit of backlash on this because Un he just made it too similar. Yeah. Right? Sure. That criticism is warranted, I think. It's sure. warranted if, if that's what you want to criticize. Anyways... I'm sure that's going to open a can of worms in the comments. Oh, it certainly is. And there is. will probably and be a lot of things I, to respond to next week. I tend to do this. I tend to overbroaden what I talk about. I don't mean to offend anybody. <laughs> um, I don't mean to say that nobody ever has a right or has a reason to take offense to things. Yeah. I don't want to say that. Um, 
Just don't. I'm just, just trying to offer a different perspective. Try, That's all I'm doing. Just don't try to. Don't look for ways don't to. Don't look to be offended. That would be a good just rule of thumb don't for life. Don't presume people's intentions. Rule of thumb. You know, some people are offended if you say rule of thumb. Yeah. Because it, you know. <laughs> well, I just said it, and sorry, but I didn't think it was offensive till afterwards, but I said it, and if you're offended, I'm sorry. But rule of thumb is a good metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and if you criticize my metaphor, that's fine. But um, just know that you are you might be being a little more picky than is warranted. Um, but I'm open to being wrong about this stuff too. Like we're, we read the comments here and I'm going to, um, you know, yeah. pay attention to what you guys say too if you think that I'm wrong about whatever I said. And I said a lot of stuff and some of it probably is wrong. So let's move you, on. You can't avoid it. It's like no. in an unscripted... Free-flowing podcast. Several hours. <laughs> you're going to say something or many things along the way. Right. It's almost not worth bringing up. But to some degree, when you're talking about people being offended and saying get over it, like you, but you, you do, I do want to let people know I don't, I, I care about you. I care, <laughs> I care about you. I really do. We, and I don't want you to be offended. And, you know, we, my apologies if I did. We do our best to try to be nuanced and to understand multiple perspectives. And, and I used to say this all the time. It actually came up because someone commented um, on our, what he saw as flawed view of history, right? As if we were saying all of history oh, is like made up or subject to interpretation. Oh, or I did say something like that, that, didn't I? And it's like, it I, reminded I, me of when I, I used to say hashtag not all all the time. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> you have to put that on everything you say. really, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> trying to say literally all of history cannot be trusted and it's all conspiratorial made up bullcrap right. by the, with the victors. Like that's not what I believe. <laughs> I obviously don't believe that. Yeah. I'm just saying when I saw that the story's framework was mm. history was wrong on this account in this particular instance with this particular character, it makes me wonder how many such examples exist in real history. Not, oh, as it puts you the entire history of the earth as we All know it in question to me. <laughs> <laughs> right? All of it's wrong. That's not what I'm trying the, to say. The, the thing would be, well, which parts are wrong and which parts are right, and you just, your, your faith yeah. in, in that gets I'm just wondering yeah. on a general scale about that. Mm -hmm. I am not trying to claim yeah. All of it's bogus. <laughs> you know what's funny? Right? This is something that we do, and I, I'll, at least I'll speak for myself. Well, I, I am a perspective person. I, I, if I say things, I'm not always asserting a factual statement. Yes. I'm often saying, here's a different way of looking at it. There's sure. a different perspective here. Sure. So I can sharpen a perspective. I can enforce a perspective or something like that, and that's often what I'm doing and what I'm looking for. I tend not to argue to change people's minds. <laughs> I don't care. I either want to sharpen my own perspective or I want to offer somebody else a new perspective. Yeah. I don't actually want, because I don't know if I'm right or not most yeah. of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what the facts are, but here's a different way of looking at it. Here's a perspective on it, and, and it may be valuable or not. And I feel like some people in the comments, based on, because I don't say this all the time, based on some things that we say, think that I'm just like spitting alternate facts. <laughs> um, or, you know, just saying, oh, here, this is a fact and this is how it is. No, this is a way of looking at a possible fact. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm saying, right? That's what I'm yeah. saying. It's a perspective thing. And I think value, it, there's value in having a sharper perspective. Yeah. Sometimes maybe we could be a little clearer as to... Like every time. This is not the belief I personally espouse. Right. It is simply a perspective that is interesting for this conversation. Because there have been a couple times when people... Yeah 
you know, get upset. It's like they start to think they know what we believe about broader politics or something based like on that, our based on what we've said in this podcast. And it's like, yeah. actually, I don't believe any of them. <laughs> I, it's so funny because whenever I see comments like that, I'm always like, based on what we've said, you all have no idea what either of us think about, well, almost anything other than video games, right? Yeah. But about the greater political, historical world. You guys don't really know what yeah. we actually think, but you will hear different perspectives, and both of us have um, kind of a sympathy for different perspectives, right? Yeah. And we will both often, like I'm a devil's advocate kind of person, I will often just argue the opposite side just because, because it sharpens my own perspective, Yeah. right? And that's just a thing, it's valuable. Get get I good perspective on things and it's It's dialogue, it's man. Dialogue is the whole purpose. Of what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. Okay, enough of that. Let's try okay. to move on to this next scene with Delito Novelia, which was freaking awesome. And if you have not seen the War of the Lions version, I'm going to show it I to you. I have not, so please do. Please do. <laughs> the scene is fantastic. I do hope this day finds your royal highness in better spirits than those past. Do not mock me. Please. I could not bear it. That was cruel of me. I am sorry. I played my part. Yet still, Ivalice runs red with blood. For what? I will burn down this kingdom, and from its ashes build for you a new one, a kingdom worthy of you. I will show you a world where your light will outshine the sun, a world that will know no darkness. Dry your tears. Very nice. It's a fantastic scene. That's a very good scene. That's so I had the privilege of reading that scene, and it plays out much in a similar manner. It just, even the hug, even when she yeah, hugs him, it's unexpected, and it just kind of happens. Yeah. Um, it was powerful in the PS1 version, but that was yeah. beautiful. It's really, really well done. And there's a lot to break down in this, like a lot. <laughs> so one thing I want to bring up first is that some of the people who were watching with me when I was doing my streams of this um, they were like, this seems to be a really sudden change for Delita, right? Like, they were, they were not sure whether they, they found the scene convincing because yeah. his whole, like, personality and tone with her really changes very abruptly here. Yes. Um, and so I want to dive into that a little bit, um, as well as into Ovelia and kind of her character arc over the course of the story. Um, also... You also realize that this is not done being developed yet. There are developments on this that lead all the way up to literally the very end of the game. Like after the credits. Yes. yes. <laughs> like Delita and Ovelia, yeah. it, we're not done with this yet. It's yeah. still building. And Delita, let's just say, without spoiling too much, he may come off as being entirely sincere in the scene. But let's just say that he's, his, his ambitions and his goals are not, they're, they're kind of, they've transcended anything to do with people at this point. He's all about an ideal of yes. reforming this government by whatever means necessary. Right. There's a term for this called consequentialism, which oh. means the ends justify the means. Yes. It's, it's yep. the embodiment of that philosophy. He's willing to use other people as he was used yep. to reach his ends. And Ovelia is not excluded in this. <laughs> yeah. Let's just put it that way. So up to this point, Ovelia has been a very unwilling, um, 
hostage of his yeah. that he's having to drag around the kingdom with him everywhere he goes, yeah. who is crying and upset and unable to like reconcile her own identity and just really struggling all the time. And his response up until now has been cold and harsh and get over yourself, take my hand and live or be hunted by the Hokuten knights. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it is what it is. Yeah. Like, stop pouting about it and just, like, get on with it. That approach has not worked. No. <laughs> and... No, she's Delita, too feisty. Delita, as um, determined, as much as he has changed as a character from when we knew him in the first chapter, I feel like there's a tinge of his heart, the last remaining part of it, <laughs> that is soft was touched in the scene when he is mocking her by using her title as a princess. Oh, your royal highness, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And she's, After she had been revealed that she's not. That moment in, the, in this cutscene, the voice acting is spectacular from oh, her. Do not mock me. It was really powerful. Yep. And it struck him how cruel he was being. Mm -hmm. And he admits to that and apologizes. This is the first time... I feel like he has sort of looked inward and been like, I'm, I think I may be going a little too far here. Yeah. And so he tries to soften up a bit and be a little more sympathetic to her. But in turn, what this does in the scene overall is gets her to now willingly follow him. So it makes his yeah. job easier yes, in regards to her. <laughs> so that's one part of this. Um, the other part of it that I, I find really interesting is just like the fact that um, they're giving this screen time to her and like there was the added scene that we talked yes, about that's not in the PS1 version yeah. where they're back at the falls again mm -hmm. right so now we've had if you're playing the War of the Lions version you've had uh, several scenes now of her really trying to deal with this mm -hmm. and uh, to, and I it's 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 I'm able to imagine I, I, just anybody. What if, like, you were, I don't know, captured or something, <laughs> and you're like, what's going on? You were, like, kidnapped, and some guys are coming down in a basement somewhere, and they're talking about how you aren't your parents' child, and your whole life, you're not actually Case and Sperry. You're not actually yeah. Mike Brown or whatever. That's not who you are. Mm -hmm. You were planted. You were, like, exchanged at the hospital or something <laughs> like yeah. that, right? Yeah, that's... And it's, uh, like, you don't... World-breaking. And, and this was done on purpose to, like, you know, manipulate mm -hmm. things. Your whole, like, identity, you have no idea who you are. Mm -hmm. Like, that would be such a horrifying thing to try to grapple with. And in particular with how she, in the scene, is talking about, I played this part. I... I went to the monasteries and had all this solitude and mm -hmm. like suffering that I went through, but I did it to play a role to maintain peace and evilies. And yet, despite me doing that, look at what's happening now is for nothing. My whole life, my whole purpose in life has been for nothing, and I'm not even who I thought I was. Yep. And like, now she's like a prisoner. What a horrible fate. Going place to place, yeah. <laughs> what a horrible fate to be used like that, to be dragged around. So that yeah. other people around you can like ascend and gain more power, and you're you, you're not even a princess to begin with. Like it's it's something I can really sympathize with. And yeah. for the first time, Delita is showing some sympathy to that, and she really right. needed it. She mm -hmm. just needed to be heard and understood, and she finally gets that across. And he starts to reveal 
a little bit of what he's really after here. He's not working for the church. He's not working for the dukes. He's not working. Yeah. He's, he's, he's doing ready to thing. burn the whole thing down yeah. and start it over again. And I'm going to do it for you, he says. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to yep. do it for you to build a kingdom worthy of you and make this better for you and so I can help you. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing that it might be a bit on the nose, but I'm just saying. Yeah. Some people were wondering, why is Delita acting so differently? Yeah. I believe his motive is to make his job easier in regards to dragging her around. But he is fully dedicated to a higher goal than... Uh, he, he's, he, he's not necessarily concerned about people. Yeah. Maybe people on the broader... Yes, kingdom's humanity. Scope. He's concerned, but about not on like certain individuals. He has to deal oh with along gosh, the way. There's a great quote. Is it Woody? Is it Woody Allen who said, "I love humanity. It's the people I don't like." Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who said that quote. But this is that's Delita right there. He's yeah. like, I'm helping the world, but I don't like any part of it. Just the whole thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. His that means his idea of the whole thing. So yes. it's you're right. It's the ideal that he's kind of he is, and he feels like he can bring it about. He is dedicated to an ideal to such a degree that he's willing to go to any length and any ends justify mm -hmm. that means. Which is how every authoritarian government gets started and also how they all end. Pretty much. <laughs> and how government has gone for the past like 10,000 years. So I have um, some thoughts there. That, that scene, I didn't get it what you had said, but I've ne I had never beaten the game before when I had played that particular cutscene. Oh, sure, yeah. Not to say that I even still, at this point, I have beaten the game now at this point, but I still don't know if that's exactly his, his, his entire sure. motivations. I want to give him a little bit more, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more credit here sure. of having actually some sort of change of heart. Now, he is using everyone, and that's all he does. He just uses people over and over and over. Um, but I had, I had taken uh, several notes here. Uh, one of them being that this is like an Anakin Padme kind of situation sure, here. Yeah. What, what he's creating and what he's setting up and they're out there. It's like Star Wars Episode Two, where they're out, they're alone, they're in this place and they're starting to kind of like be together mm -hmm. in one way or another. Um, that he's becoming evil, trying to help her. That I yeah. will give you this kingdom, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to have to do to make this kingdom. But I'm doing it for you. Yeah. And that's encroaches more on Star Wars Episode Three kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's I feel like there's some. It's just funny. This came out before either of those movies. I'm just saying that's the feeling yeah. that I'm getting. That's what it's evoking. Right. Um, but he's on a path to become worse than what he's fighting, and it's yes. like so obvious. He can't see it, but it's so obvious. Like, yes. To the viewer, to the game player, that this guy, this guy's on a path to destruction. He will destroy himself, and he will lose himself, and he will not make anything better. It, and there's almost like a meta message here that Delita, and this goes to an earlier point we had. Delita's trying to do this without any divine help, without any yes. assistance, without any magic, mm. without any of that stuff. He is straight up just playing the political game. And he's going to kill people and, and politicalizeness himself up to the top, right? <laughs> yeah. He's doing it that way. That's how he's decided to do it. And that's what he's going for. That's his aim. In order to do that, you have to become the worst person alive. Yeah. But you that's how, that's how the current the monarchs process. got there. So it's like, yeah. You know. um, oh, what's the quote? 
Hold on, I'll find this quote in a second because I stole it from my own novel. When you but, said lose yourself in the process, I, I'm thinking of the first part of that, but I can't remember it. Um, I'll get it in a second because it's great. Okay. But, um, but it goes with what we were saying before where I feel like it, to some degree the artist, Matsuno, is trying to make some type of a statement like this kingdom is not possible without magic, right? The magic, the, the, the magic... More or less, can can bring about something that's impossible. Yeah. You need magic to do what's impossible. That's kind of the definition of magic, more or less. Right? Sure. You have to have that. Delete is like, no, I'm going to make utopia, and I'm not going to ask. There will be no divine assistance. There will be no magic. There will be nothing. It's it's all going to be just me, and I'm doing it myself. Right? There's yeah. no alliance with nature, which could be seen as magic or in any other way. And Matsuno is saying that you you embrace the magic to bring about. And magic for artists is just a blanket term for... Well, like the, the Aura site is like an analog for just power generally, right? Like the sure. power to but rule or whatever. You use that power for good, but you, you need something along those lines. I yeah. could be misinterpreting it, but that's kind of what I took. Uh, speaking to what you were saying about trying to get Delita more credit, I do think it's probably important to note that nobody just like flips and turns into the exact opposite of what they were, or the person they were fighting all along. No, in, in but one, that goes into in my next In one note. event, right? Yeah. So like, it's not like he, Delita was this person, and then Titra died and he became this person. Yeah. This is a gradual it's process. It's a gradual process. And he's in the midst of that process even now. Yeah. So even what he's saying True. might be, he might have some authenticity in what he's saying. He might actually mean it mm. um, to a certain degree. And so it might not be like pure deceit, like he's just lying to Ovelia about his yeah. about wanting to build a kingdom for her or whatever. Um, I don't mean to imply that, but what I do mean is that if you're seeing this as a oh this is a really weird change for Delita, just understand that this is not over being developed yet, I see. and there's more to it than what he's saying, and you will learn that through all the way to like the literally the final scene with Delita in the game. Yeah. So. So have you seen Band of Brothers? No. <clears throat> oh man, it came out like 20 years ago, but it's a great American propaganda piece. <laughs> but it's a good, it's a good show. Um, I think Spielberg directed it himself. And um, it is, there's a character in it named, I think is a sergeant, Sergeant Spears. He um, is like the most fearless person in battle. He just goes mm. up there, he runs right through the bullets, he goes there, he does things that everyone's afraid to do. And, and he comes out of it alive still. And it's like, this is crazy. How is this guy accomplishing this? Somebody asks him at one point, he says, how do you do what you do? You're crazy. I can't believe you're doing this. And he says, well, it's simple. You just have to accept the fact that you're already dead. Yeah. Once you got that letter that notified you that you're being drafted into the military, you accept your, you're dead. Accept your life's over. Accept that you're dead. And once you accept that you're dead, you can do so many things. Yeah. And, and if you die, Because there's no fear. So what? Yeah. yeah, you're dead. You already died. It doesn't matter, right? And so somehow, and that psychologically is probably weird. I can't quite wrap my head around it, but I can see how someone in a military position would kind of be forced into that type of a situation. Yeah. But with Delita having survived that explosion that killed his sister, I well, his sister, I guess, was killed right before that, but it's all part of the same event. Having survived that moment with the thought, like, this is a second lease on life kind of thing. Like, yeah. I've been granted a new lease. Basically, I died, and now I'm back. Right. I am going to, like, do things that I never would have done in my first life, so to speak, that yeah. I never would have done before I, so to speak, died, 
right? I right. feel like his courage has come from that place that he's like, I, I'm, I, I am or slash may be already dead. And so I've got nothing to lose and I can do, I can, it's like he's free now and he, he can do things that he was never going to do before, right. that he never could, never would do before. He lost the closest people to him and he is like in some sense, like he's free to, to break the, bind, the, bounds, the binds that bounded him. The bonds. Previ- the bonds. That the bonds bound him. That bound him. <laughs> there you go. To break the bonds that bound him previously. Um, but he had to die in order for that to happen. Yeah. Like, like almost literally he had to die. Um, and I feel like that could explain a lot of the abrupt transition that a lot of people may feel with Delita. Um, is that he is in that Sergeant Spears space, right? He has accepted something and because of that he is able to do incredible things, yeah. like way, way amazing things. But he won't quite accept help from anyone, including nature or magic or the he's divine, which clearly himself. exists in this game. Um, he's gonna just make it himself and that, and of because course. Because he does not want to be a puppet for anyone or exactly. anything. I'm done being used by he's anyone else. Now the I'm pup- the, he's the puppet master. using you. Yeah, he's now the puppet master. Exactly right. So I thought that was fun. Um, there you go. Anything else on that one? Or? No, that's yeah. about all I got there. Um, that was just a really a really good scene. And we don't see much of Delita for the next little while. Yeah, it's a bit before you see him again. Uh, the next battle is at the, the Grog Heights. These are a group of southern sky deserters who are like, we're <laughs> running away, don't chase us. Yes. And it's like, we're not here to fight you. And they're like, wait a minute. That's the heretic Ramza. If we bring his head, they'll pardon us yes. for deserting. It's a pretty naive thing. I, honest, I, <laughs> my note here says, wow, we just totally slaughtered all those deserters. That was strange. I don't know about the way that all went down. Um, clearly, well, we needed a battle. There was an opportunity for a battle. And this is a thing that's happening and they're showing us. But the way that everyone that we fight becomes like just a really horrible person right before we kill them so that we're justified in killing them. It's very convenient. <laughs> It's like, oh, we're deserters. Oh, yeah, they're, they don't want war. They want peace. They're, they're leaving so they can go be with their families. Oh, wait a second, guys. We could totally, like, murder. They even say it, like, a dead or alive. Like, let's just kill him, right? We can kill this guy, and that would solve all of our problems. It's like, that was, talk about abrupt changes. That's a, that's a really, and I do get that that may be a plausible thing to happen, but Ramses, it, Ramza, is yeah. very lucky that this keeps happening to him so that he can have clean hands. Well, we just there would be no battle otherwise, which exactly. means we'd have no level. So we need there. a justification every single time to kill the people we kill. And fair enough, fair enough. They may not the always land for everybody. It just is weird this and very convenient. This didn't bother me. It seemed, like you said, plausible as deserters because it's like, how, what do they think they're going to do? They're going to like live in the streets like... They're yeah, obviously being the hunted by Oren Durai right yes, now. Yes. Like maybe it's like, okay, we made that decision rashly. Like, what do we do now? Like we're yeah. screwed. Oh, here's an opportunity to hopefully get pardoned or something. And you would think, oh, let's capture him. We don't have to kill him. But of course they throw in, let's just kill him. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Dead just, or alive. just to spice it up Bring so that his we head. can we can kill them in return. Right. Defend ourselves. Yes. But the conversation with Durai at the end of the battle, or oh, at the end of the battle. Oh, it's very good. Very good. 
Um, so this is where he reveals he's the adopted son of Count uh, Sidolphus, Thunder God Sid. Yeah, or, um, or Landu, right? And we know that he's one of the few nobles in the Order of the Southern Sky under Goltana's banners yeah. who actually cares yeah. about the people here. And who wants peace. So Oren yeah. is probably going to have a similar sentiment <coughs> to share similar yeah. feelings, right? <coughs> so, it's good. Um, it, it, it's the, I didn't copy any dialogue from this exchange, but the exchange is really good. It's, it's just really well written how they're cautious of each other, yes. but at the same time, they're understanding each other and they're mm -hmm. like, okay, I, can, I feel like I can trust you. I feel like you're one of the good mm -hmm. people in all of this garbage mess of nobles who are evil. Um, so I can't do much to d directly help you. Right. They're both kind of back and forth like this, but can you take a message Ramza says to Oren, to your father, yeah. that he shouldn't be fighting Larg, he should be fighting the people who are manipulating him from behind the scenes. Mm. That's who we should really be fighting. He's like, well, my father has spies, they're trying to uncover this, you probably know more than us since you're the heretic here, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, we're trying, you know, mm. we're making an attempt to like find out what's really going on here, like don't worry about that. Uh, what were you going to say? Well, it's lucky that Olan didn't have orders to kill us, otherwise we would have slaughtered his whole company <laughs> right then and there. Because he and was then, just carrying out orders. He kills people for his job. And then the story would have never him. gone into the stone to begin with. And then that did, yeah, who knows? Who knows? A lot of the other people we killed, maybe they would have written great, <laughs> written great things about great it. stories and <laughs> truthful things for the history books. That's funny. But yeah, we also learned that um, Ramses' father was oh. the only good friend of Orlando. They, they yeah. were. Like, Ramses' father only had one good friend, and it was yeah. this guy, yeah. this uh, Sid uh, fellow. Thunder God. And so they do have a mutual respect for each other, and I really liked how that scene played out. They don't yeah. know if they can trust each other or not. Um, but Olan does r reveal that, hey, you're a heretic, and I know that, and I actually knew that when we first met. Yeah. But I didn't do anything about it because you helped me out, and that's that. And so with that moment where or um, Olan kind of seemed to recognize us there that was yeah. that he was recognizing us as a heretic to be brought in by the church um but he didn't do it so he clearly will pick and choose which rules he's willing to follow and which ones he will excuse yeah particularly which, which because is a good quality to have. they are currently suspicious of the church anyways exactly and they're trying to uncover a plot there yeah so they so know something fishy we don't on. learn much from him other than Good, we don't have to kill Olan. <laughs> don't because with this game, and this is a great to the to the credit of the storytellers here. You don't know who's friend or foe. You don't know who to trust. You don't know who you will have a conversation with one minute and and literally be in in battle the next. You yeah. don't know which of if your brothers are good or bad or any of this stuff. You don't know anything about this, and it can so quickly and easily turn into a situation where it's like. We have to fight, even though we don't want to. Um, and you don't know who's going to live or who's going to die and who's going to come out on top. And that's to the credit of the storyteller. People people want that in a story. People sure. want a story where they can't guess how it's going to end, you know? Right. And this is well done here. Yeah. It's a really good scene. Uh, next battle is at the walled city of Yardro. Oh, wait. One more line. One more line. Oh, uh, this get? was weird. This was a Japanese line a little bit, and I kind of want to know what it says in more of the lines. But we bring up the Germanic... Oh, Germanic scriptures. The Germanic yeah. to Olan, briefly. But the way it's written um, in the PS1 version, he says, 
Here's the Germanic, no, nothing. I read that line and I was like, that's freaking weird. There's no way that was translated correctly. And it wasn't quite translated correctly. Um, right, in the Japanese, what well, he says, um, kokoni, and this is great, because it's uh, geru, gerumoniku. Gerumoniku, that's it. Mm -hmm. Gerumoniku, that's how they pronounce Germanic. Gerumoniku ya nantemonai, which means no. Okay, so he says here, this here German, Germanic, nah, never mind. That should be, that was what it should say. Yeah. It was like, this Germanic, nah, never mind. That's yeah. how it should have gone. He's, but it's the like way he's it's starting, is, he's starting, here's the Germanic. It sounded like he was offering it to him. Yeah, it's, it's, almost, it's like he's beginning to think, I can trust you enough to tell you this, actually, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe yes. I should rethink that. And I assume that's what it meant, yeah. but the PS1 version wasn't super clear about that. Um, and in the Japanese, it is clearer that he says, Koko ni gerumoniku, iya, nandemonai. Yeah. And then they leave. And it's perfect. It makes a lot more sense. It's way, way clearer that he's like, never mind, instead of nothing. He's in the English here, he says, no, nothing. But what he really says is, eh, never mind. Yeah. And it, never mind is, is important. In the War of the Lions version, the conversation goes like this. Uh, Ramza says, you know of the High Confessor's plot? And Oren says, of it, yes, but we have no hard evidence. Our spies are working tirelessly, but I suspect you know more than they. Ramza says, if you did have evidence of the plot, would you then be willing to lay down your swords? And Oren says, such evidence exists. And Ramza says, the, uh, Ramza says, the scriptures, no, it matters not. I simply wish to know. Perfect. That's way yeah. better. Because the word scriptures yeah. can mean a, a lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah. But in this one, we literally told him the Germanique. Yeah. Or Specifically, which book of scripture. Yeah, which yeah. is, you know, most people raised in the church's tradition would know very quickly what he's talking about. Um, they'll be like saying, well, this Judas, I mean, <laughs> never mind. It's like, wait, Jude? Wait, what? What are you about talking Judas. about, man? What are you talking about? That, yeah. Now I'm interested, you know? Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, that makes, that was better translated there, so that's yeah. great. Yeah, so it's well done. Another but yeah, that example. Is, <clears throat> that is a good reveal there that he does the trust War of the Lion script being better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yardrow? Ready yep. to move on to what Yardrow now? Yeah, my first note here is that these cutscenes are so packed with meaning and subtlety that it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. <laughs> they're elusive, but revealing enough such as to pique your interest. Yeah. Right? Because they're not so direct. It's so good. Particularly with this subplot with Marak and Rafa, mm -hmm. it's... Yes, yeah, yeah. A little bit, I don't want to call it, it's not censored per se in the PS1, oh. but it's softened quite a lot. Oh, really? As to hmm. what you get in this version. And so I want to talk about that because this whole scenario just makes my freaking skin crawl. Really? Like it's, oh man, and the lines, they just get more quotable almost as the game goes on. It's just like they're so good, the way that they're written. So we're introduced here to, to Marek again, who was the one who set up the exchange for Alma and the scriptures of Germany. Mm. Um, but he has a sister named Rafa, and they're arguing about the integrity of the Grand Duke Barrington yeah. who raised them. Um, Rafa's main contention here is he, the only reason he took us in is because we have these unique gifts. She yeah. explains a little bit about what those are in the scene that follows the battle. And I think I took um, a, a direct quote so that we can just quote what she says about that. Okay, good. But they have some kind of magical ability or some sort of ethereal... Like uh, a technique. Technique that they, that they have, that, that, that they're born with. And the Grand Duke Barrington wanted to use them for that. 
Mm. Um, and so he came to their village wanting to take them and the village elders said no way. And so Barrington burned down their village yeah. and slaughtered the village and just took them as children mm. into his own house. Rafa's trying to explain this to Merrick, and Merrick does not want to believe that. Mm. He does not want to believe his father is an evil man, right? So he's abusive to her too. Merrick s slaps her mm. in the scene, like, how dare you say that about our father kind of thing, right? And, and, but it was, it was really sickening to me that he did this after she made this accusation. Um, or after she made this accusation. Did I write it down? Oh, I didn't write it down. Uh, not the, the first part. This is all in the scene that follows after. But she accuses the, the Duke of having raped her mm. or molested her in some fashion. And that's when Merrick slaps her. Like, how dare you say that? Wow. So this was highly effective at making me hate the Duke and Merrick both. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't, and this is going to kind of go into something that's been a bit of a recurring topic for mm. us in terms of Characters that get redemption or not, oh. or have to die. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and how I felt particularly about Merrick's redemption and all of this. About his arc, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think he, I didn't think he apologized well enough <laughs> to okay. be forgiven for his refusal to yeah. believe his own sister had in been a molested and, and victimized yeah. by this man and his adherence and loyalty to the man over mm. his sister. I found to be highly despicable mm. and it was very hard for me to accept that Merrick is allowed to come back to life and be forgiven <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like I know this is going to be some yeah. case that I will have to talk about because we've <laughs> talked about it so much um, but anyways you, you come, upon, off on that you come upon this scene and she runs out to us help yeah. me please like mm. I'm trying to escape from this situation yeah. and Merrick admits in the battle he's willing to kill his own sister her, over yeah. this. Yep. And it's just like, dude, I hate this guy, right? Yeah. Um, anyways, if you win the battle, he teleports and escapes. <laughs> of course, of course. And you have a really nice scene with Rafa after this. And there's some really great lines here. This line from Ramza was good because they're talking about the Duke, the Grand Duke Barrington. Um, he had some, he set up like a lot of orphanages apparently. And Ramza says this about him. He erected a great many orphanages in the war's wake. It was a noble gesture of less than noble intent. He wanted assassins. The orphanages gave him a pool of willing young minds, allowing him to select the very best to groom and train. So I just don't like, I don't like when people victimize or take advantage of children like this. Right. It's like, to me, the Grand Duke Barrington, Barrington is almost the most evil character in the story. Oh, really? Based on what he did to yeah. Rafa, based on the fact that he set up orphanages to groom children. So when you say that this was softened in the PS1 version, that's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think this was I as clear in the PS1 version that. that he did these all of these things. And mm. particularly what he did to Rafa is f enormously softened. Yeah. Um, hmm. But she does say this about their... Um, about who they are, uh, her and Merrick. We Galthenans, or Galthenas, are keepers of a sacred art passed down through the generations. My brother and I are conduits, I of the heavens and he of the nether. We channel their power through mantra. Grand Duke Barrington desired that power for his own. 
when our elder refused him, the Grand Duke put our entire village to the torch. And then I want to read a couple of the lines directly here um, that, that she says. So, Merrick, this is at the beginning of the battle. Merrick's saying, have you forgotten who it was that saved us and took us in? He opened his heart to us, all, this, all these sorts of things. Like, uh, how could you repay that kindness with treachery? And she says, feed us yeah. he did, Merrick, but we were supped on lies. I know the truth mm. now. It was the Grand Duke himself who set fire to our village, his hand hidden by the smoke of war. And do you know why? Uh, why he killed everyone we ever knew? It was for our gifts. You and I possess power, and power is all he craves. He burnt down our entire village that he might claim the sacred power of our mantras for his own. Opened his heart, you say? The man is not possessed of one. It is you who need to open your eyes, Merrick. Okay, that's when he walks up and slaps her in the face. Then he says, I'll not abide your ill-mannered tongue. And she says, you know, don't you? You know what the, the thing he did to me. You're my brother, you know of this, and even yet you... Oh, so she didn't inform him of this just then. Yes, it was this after This is something he had he known for him. that long. He's like, you have to know that he's done this, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not going to sit here and pretend you don't know he did this to me. And his response is, speak not another word, you stir a rage in me, Rafa. I am your brother and your elder, and I will not have you question me. I hated Marek's response. I hated him for this. His sister is trying to tell him how she was victimized, and he would rather hold to his adopted mm. Grand Duke father loyalty to him than listen to his own flesh and blood. And anyways, this made it difficult for me to forgive him. Yeah. Made it really difficult for me to forgive him. But then in the... <coughs> later, when she's talking with Ramza, right? Do-do-do-do... She, she talks to him a little bit about, you know, why are you fighting? He's like, oh, I don't fight for gratitude. I'm a Beowulf. I fight for the honor of my name. And she's like, I don't believe that. Like, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't strike me the sort of man who fights for things <coughs> so trite. No. You see evil and injustice before your eyes, and you can't turn away. You know, you're a good person. You're not fighting for the honor of your name kind of thing. He's like, whatever. Let's not talk about that anymore. Tell me more about yourself. <laughs> and then she, she's talking about her brother here. And so I think this is where they tried to build the case for his redemption. So I want to be fair to this interpretation and read this part. She, so for, in her words, she's talking about her brother. He refuses to accept the truth. We were orphaned in a war, you see. We lost our parents, our home, all but our lives. The memories haunt me even now. Climbing mounds of rubble in search of any scrap of food, the air thick with, the death, uh, with death's foul stench. That was the life from which the Duke spared us. At the time, I thought it sure the gods had sent him. So this is what... Merrick wants to believe about the Grand Duke, right? And this mm -hmm. is where Ramza says the stuff I already read. Okay. Um, I imagine the joy he must have felt when he discovered the two of us among the other orphans. It turns my stomach. So she, she's like, oh, he, he killed everyone. He's so glad that we survived because he could use us, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when you learned of this, you tried to flee, says Ramza. She says, my brother and I loved the man as though he were our father, but even that did not stop him from, from, and she can't like bear to say it. So yeah. he molested her. He raped her, whatever, whatever it was, right? 
and Merrick does not want to believe that about him. Um, now, that being said, the next set of battles, well, there's one more in the Yugwood, which is like nothing important to have. It's a total filler battle. But the next set of battles is the end of, leads to the end of chapter three. In the rooftop thing, yeah. Yeah, the Riovanes castle. Mm -hmm. And this is where people need to be very careful to make a backup save. <laughs> this is yeah, the spot. I figured, I figured. Where you can get caught in battles that you cannot leave to go train or buy new equipment or mm -hmm. rearrange things really very much. This, this is the spot where you definitely need a backup save because these are very hard fights if you're not prepared for them. And, and there's uh, multiple stages. There's multiple stages of it. Yeah. Uh, and you can't like leave. The, the enemy has multiple stages. Like you'll beat him, you think you beat him. And it's not and over. And then <laughs> you have to fight him again in his, in his higher form. Um, yeah. In my tips video for Final Fantasy Tactics, my 10 tips on how to get started, um, I was talking about Zodiac compatibility in the... Um, in the, it might be a little bit too late to be giving this advice now, <laughs> but in the tips I said, if you don't want to worry too much about this, mm -hmm. just pick Capricorn and just be with Virgo and Taurus right. and you're good. Yeah. Um, the battle against Wygriff here, if you are a Capricorn, it increases his compatibility against you, meaning he will do more damage to you, making the probably hardest fight in the game even harder. Even harder. So it might have been yeah. better to be Pisces. I tried to <laughs> make that note <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in the comments. Mm -hmm. Now that being said, I've been Capricorn every time I played the game and I've won this battle. There okay. are other ways to overcome yeah. that particular problem. Um, I think as I was watching my footage, what I did is I equipped an ability that is like a critical HP recover. So when he does oh, damage yeah. and you go into critical mode, you heal yourself. Mm, nice. um, and I was using an ability to increase my bravery to maximum so that your that bravery affects not just your damage with certain weapons, but also the chance of your reaction abilities happening. Mm. So if it's at 100, you have a 100% chance of your reaction ability being activated. So right. if it's first strike, if they attack you, you'll every attack them first time, yeah. every time. I had HP recover, critical HP recover on, so he would come and do 170 damage to me, put me in critical mode, I would just heal myself. Immediately. And then just sit there and buff and buff and buff for the next part of the fight, which is against Bellius, and I just kind of locked um, Wygraf in this uh, pattern of him trying to do the same attack and me just healing every time, and him attacking me, me just healing. So there are ways around that problem if you're a Capricorn and you're finding the fight very hard. Right. You won't be able to leave this battle to go get the, uh, the ability I just said. <laughs> if you're at this point. So make sure you make a backup save so yeah. that you can go get some abilities you might want to use in the fight or something like that or change your class or something. Just make a backup save before you go to Riovani's. That's all I'm saying. It's really freaking hard. Okay. Um, but this scene between Falmarv and Duke Barrington is like uh, fantastic. Yeah. It's so good. Oh this is one of goodness is it This good. is one of the <laughs> This is one of the better scenes in the game. Oh, and every so scene in the game is good, so that's saying something. Oh uh, yes. And even <laughs> we come back here a little bit later on and it's 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 just so awesome. It's very good. This whole conclusion to the third act is just like mm, phenomenal. It's very good. It's very good. So you have Falmarv coming in, he's been invited there by Duke Barrington. And there's just a lot of great quotable lines, the fencing and words I've been talking about that mm. I really love. I have an affinity for that. 
this is stuff I live for, I wrote. It's just, I, I love this dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, the Duke is aware of the plot of the Church of Glavidos. And he's revealing slowly that he knows this and uh, Falmarv is trying to kind of deny it or like, mm. you know, have, you know, just more or less dismiss that whole idea yeah. about this Arasite stones. How do you yeah. believe a legend? I would not have thought you to be a man to believe in these kind of fantasies. And it's like he has the upper hand and then, but the, 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 that's what I love about scenes like this. It's you feel like the upper hand changes throughout mm-hmm. the scene. It feels like at first Falmarv clearly is the one in charge. But then Barrington starts to reveal some things and it's like he's slowly taking momentum of the situation away. And now he feels like he's the one in charge. And he brings Merrick in and he's got a stone. And anyways, like it, 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 and anyways, it, it, and then it switches again very abruptly. And Falmarv, as, as a holder of one of these stones, who is possessed by a demon himself, just freaking massacres everybody everybody including <laughs> including his um, own son his own son which who did was not rough no he had no he idea did not know this what is was uh, is islude um yeah from earlier we yes. encountered him earlier right had no idea and and it was really interesting because he comes in and falmar slaps him is like you worthless son or something right, like that he right. didn't beat us yeah because yeah um it was somehow he was implicating him in having tipped the Duke off into understanding the plot that's really oh, going on. Oh, and that's on. why he gets slapped. I thought it was because Not on purpose, but, but because, but also because of his other failures. Because he doesn't know. He doesn't yeah, know what doesn't not to say. He doesn't really know what's going on. Yeah, interesting. Anyways, I, I love, that's what you should be going for as a writer in your scenes. Mm. There's a conflict in the scene, and, and what makes it interesting all the way through the end is if you're seeing a momentum or a, 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 an upper hand sort of shift. You do this yeah. in fight scenes too. Oh or yes, like always. war scenes or whatever. You 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 see one side. It, it's like Rocky. Uh, yes. Oh yeah. You Rocky. have one guy with the upper hand, but then yeah. that switches and the momentum's going back and forth. This is the sort of thing you want, not just in battle scenes or in combat, but also in people confronting each other philosophically or with yeah. words or trying to outwit one another. That's partly why Rocky is so good. Yeah. Because spoiler alert for a 50-year-old movie, <laughs> he doesn't win that fight. No. I believe it's a draw, right? Or they, or he loses. Did he lose or was it a draw? I believe he loses. Either way, he does not win. He doesn't win that fight. But the, com- the competition between spirit versus like elite. Yeah, yeah he loses. In that. Yeah, okay, so yeah. he loses the first fight. But everyone cheers for him yeah. because, in some weirdish way, he won the fight that he was fighting. It's a moral victory. Yeah, which was very valuable. And in the story, you know, the the philosophy of of bravery versus just raw power, and and he triumphed in in a different way. You know, yeah. so even that story, even that fight scene, isn't about the fight. It's about this other competing idea that's hanging over the fight. Yeah, the whole time. Right. That's the way to write a good story. I think you're right. So yeah, you gotta have the momentum shifting or the upper hand shifting between the characters. That's what keeps it interesting. If, if like one well. side is dominating too much, it starts to get a little yeah. boring. It's like, oh, okay, this is the situation. You need to have a reveal that, ooh, this changes things. That, that like piques the interest of the reader or the viewer again. Okay, what's yeah. gonna happen now? Oh, this other element that changes the context. This person's now 
you know, winning. So that's hard to do, but I will say for movies, you will have a fight coordinator or a stunt coordinator. Yes. If you're writing a story with this kind of a thing. Yes. As you. Yes. You're the philosophy coordinator. Yes. You have to make this interesting, which means you got to do your homework yeah. <laughs> and you got to read up on this stuff and understand like what types of things would compete and would be interesting. You know? Right. So Barrington sends Merrick out to face us because we've just arrived, but that's before Fulmarv transforms yeah. and massacres everybody. everybody yeah. Apparently the Duke himself escapes, but like the soldiers are all like horrifically slaughtered. And as, as, when you get done with the fight with Merrick outside, and Rafa kind of leaves your party for a while to go after him, uh, the door to like the front gate opens and there's just mm -hmm. a, like a, a wounded soldier who comes out who says, claws and fangs, gods have mercy. Yes. Like yeah. what is happening? Yeah. Like just what is this devilry? What is this? Yep. <laughs> Something really messed up happened inside. It's not just Falmarv, but Wygraf has also transformed into Gigas, yes. uh, Bellius or whatever, and, and is killing people. And so you hurry inside and this is where you face Wygriff. Um, but he sees the slaughter that's happening. He just sees guards dead everywhere. Um, and so he's battling with words with Wygriff again. You would sell your soul to the Lakavi to slake your thirst for revenge. Great line. <laughs> I believe at that point, this is where he says one of the lines I wrote was, how miserable you are. Yeah. It's just great. Just yeah. like, that's like a perfect insult. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and, you know, of course, uh, Wygriff has witty comebacks as well, but... Oh, very much so. This, is the, this battle's really tough. So, there's many approaches to beating it. Just like I said, make sure you have a backup safe so you can play around with how you approach this fight. Yeah. But, um, after you beat Wygriff, he transforms into Bellius. You bring your... Because it's a one-on-one -on -one battle. It's just you against Wygriff. And I remember the first time I ever saw this game in person. Landon, or Parker, I can't remember oh, yeah. who it was, was stuck on this battle. This battle. And could not win this battle. <laughs> it was I, like, I don't know what to do. I, I remember, can't win. I don't remember it was this one, but I do remember that there was a battle he was stuck on. I can't, I can't, I literally can't win. Like, what do I do? I can't leave, I saved. So I'm stuck. And he was locked out. This is one of the many friends I talked about in my tips video <laughs> who got stuck in this part and couldn't freaking progress. <laughs> yeah. Because you just, you have no warning of it coming. Um, Anyways, your people come in in the second part of the fight. He transforms into Bellius. He has some monsters that come in. And if you win that fight, um, you get a scene where Alma walks in on the carnage from earlier that Falmarv did in the room with Barrington. Yeah. And Falmarv... Uh, well, Islud is the one who's alive still, right? Yeah, he's barely alive, but he's like... Oh, blood you're right, but Volmarv, that's right. This is where Volmarv comes in. He comes in yes. after she oh, goes man. to him. So she goes to the side of Isu. So that is a great, that's like my, yeah. that scene was so good with her talking with, with Islud. Yeah. was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. It was so, so, so well done. He finally realized that what Ramza had been telling mm. him was correct. Was true. He was like laying there dying in a pool of his own blood but from he, his father's hand. But he didn't know that he was dying. Yeah. And that, this, it's like, it's so sad, but it's so like, it's just so well done. It's and he crazy. carries an aracite and he gives it to yeah. her. Mm. Right, like take this, give it to Ramza kind of thing. She puts it in her pocket. Yep. But it, during that whole dialogue, he's saying things like, 
like he's just talking to Alma, saying, "Yeah, this happened and this happened. Where's my sword? I need my sword." Yeah, and, and he, then he can't even hold it. His hand's not responding. Well, he keeps asking for light, so yeah. he's talking and he's saying, "Why is it so dark in here?" But the, these things are interjected amongst. You don't ever get didactically directly told he's gonna die. Yeah. But based on what he's saying, he can't see. Yeah. He can't feel his arms. He doesn't know. He keeps asking for a sword. He keeps saying, um, "I got to do is it? something." I can't yeah. feel my arms. You know he's going to die. Yeah. And it's like, but it's shocking. He's he's hasn't accepted it. He doesn't know what's happening. He thinks that he should be able to just get up and go yeah. and keep moving, but he can't. And it's like it's heartbreaking, but it's like so well yeah. done. It's so well done. It's really good. Yeah. And this is where Falmarv actually comes in. And uh, he starts approaching Alma there, and he's threatening to kill her, but then his Virgo stone stirs in her presence, yeah. and he he mentions something about having found someone mm. who he thought they might have to spend centuries more searching yes. for. Yes, and he but, just accidentally found. Oh, it, could this be the one type of thing? Right. And that's when he decides to take Alma. Rather than kill her. Should do the gut punch knockout. The, the solar plexus. Take her. <laughs> 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 and just like take her with him. Yeah. So he kidnaps uh, Alma and they leave. Now this is some of the dialogue that really made my skin crawl. With uh, Duke Barrington on the top of the roof in the oh, third yeah. fight. Um, oh yeah, well by the way, there was also the implication here... I think this is somebody mentions this uh, within the dialogue that the stones will be activated and they become possessed by the evil spirit afterwards, depending on who's calling upon it and yes. why they're doing it. Yes, that that I think that's more directly stated at this point. Yeah, it comes up after this when uh, Ramza tries to stop Rafa from using the stone, and he realizes, oh. It didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And oh, so that comes up a it little. It comes later. a little after. They this. mentioned it earlier here, but then it's yeah. even it's perfectly directly explained here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on the rooftop, Rafa is confronting Barrington, and she's threatening her vengeance on him. Yeah. And he's like, "How dare you? How ungrateful of you! After all I've done, just total gaslighting language here. Right. Yeah. Just I mean, just awful gaslighting. It's yeah. just horrible." <laughs> considering what he's done. Yes. And he, I took down this line that just like, ew, it just gave me chills. It was so creepy. He says, the flesh remembers Rafa. It remembers fear, cold, and trembling. But it will not always be so. In time, your fear will blossom into another flower, and I shall have that one as well. Oh, I was geez. like, oh my God. <laughs> Oh, that's rough, this dude. guy has got to die. Like I and hate that this man. Was not explained. <laughs> well, the metaphor of plucking a flower is that yes. of taking virginity. Right. Regardless, right. That is like, man, that's rough. The the that was the, not in the PS1 version, at least not to yes, that extent. Right. It may have even said something like that, but I didn't realize what it was talking about. That's yes. crazy. It's this is what's so powerful about the dialogue in this game is it's not on the nose like that. This yeah. is in the subtext of what he's mm. saying, right? The subtext in this game is just phenomenal. Yes. But like yeah. that line in particular, it just makes you oh, man. piece that together, what he's really saying there, and it's just like, oh my, oh man. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bad. And, and she's just furious. She's got a sword um, drawn. 
He's got like a gun, basically. Yeah. Pointed at her. This is where Merrick enters the scene. This is the redemption moment. The, well, yes, yeah. and realizes she was telling the truth. Yes. This is the kind of man Barrington is. He's like, you really meant that, didn't you? Like what you just said. Right. And so they're both confronting him. Merrick jumps in front of a bullet to save her. Mm -hmm. um, so he takes the bullet and out. pushes her he hit, into yeah. cover. Um, and this is where we arrive and try to help her. But before we have a chance to attack Barrington, um, the Marquis, or Mar Marquis, Marquis de Limberry, who we saved in the first chapter mm -hmm. of the game, comes with some of his people, and they just literally pick him up and toss him off the roof. <laughs> 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 just throw him to his death. <laughs> that, it, this is one of the power dynamic things within the game, where it's like, who, who's... Who's in charge? <laughs> yeah. Like, you think you get, oh, this is the mastermind behind the plot. Wait, what? Boom. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny. And so it's like, okay, he's more or less expressing some so form of gratitude for saving him earlier. Yeah. Listen, this doesn't have to end in a fight. Just give me the oversight. We'll just go our separate ways. Yeah. This is where you realize <laughs> that there is an even higher power that's yeah. like really kind of shaping everything behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, who are, like, then um, on the flanks, there are two other beings that just yeah. kind of appear. Yeah. And it's like, who are these people? Like, yep. this is like a whole different level from what we've been yeah. dealing with. It seems like these are some people who are in truer power from a different realm. Right. Um, I would be remiss not to mention that this fight sucks. <laughs> no, yes, it is very difficult. It's, it's, it's possibly the worst designed yeah. fight in the whole game. Yeah. Um, if they even knock out Rafa, it's game over. Right. It's not like usual where you have a team member go down and they have three turns before they crystallize or die yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And if you win the fight before that then happens, you can, you can still them, yeah. win. Mm -hmm. And they, they'll come back to life at the end of the battle. So there's permadeath in the game, but you get several turns before they actually die. Mm. This was one of the things that I hated about the game early on. Yeah. When I played it like 20 years ago, yeah. was the permadeath feature. Because right. as soon as I'd lose one character, I'd be like, I'm done playing the game. <laughs> and it's part of the fear of missing out thing, the FOMO, yeah. where I'm just like, if I can't be OP at yeah. everything, I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was rough. But uh, the Marquess himself, Mar Marquess himself, has the first strike ability, the one where if you attack him, he oh, attacks yeah. you first, the reaction mm -hmm. ability. So, basically, you have to run and take out one of these people in, like, one turn, or else mm -hmm. they're going to kill Rafa. Yeah. Like, you're just not going to be able to stop it. Your people aren't close enough to the battle on where you can put them, uh, like, when you place them before the battle starts. Yeah. Uh, well, unless, and the range is all screwy. And, and the speed. Like, they're yeah. very fast characters, so it's not like mm -hmm. your mage maybe could teleport over and get oh, something yeah. off, but it's like you just don't have time. They will flank Rafa and kill her too fast. Yeah. And it's just like, it, this, this battle usually ends in one or two turns. And you either win in that one or two turns or you lose in that one or two turns. I hate this fight, That's it's ridiculous. awful, and you gotta be pretty overpowered to be able to just walk over to one of the, because mm. you're not gonna kill the Marquis. He's he got that first strike, unless you're using magic, I guess. He, he's, if you're gonna melee against him, he's gonna use that first strike on yeah, you. Yeah. So you gotta run to one of the other people and just like, Die in one hit, please, so that the battle yeah. can be over. <laughs> I, I think in my playthrough, I had a Ramza as a combination of a ninja and a monk. So he was doing bare-fisted high damage 
but he was yeah. using two hands. So oh, he gets nice. two attacks each yeah, time. Yeah, that's sweet, that's sweet. So that's the way that I did it. Yeah. And it worked out for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this fight sucked. It's yeah, just totally. not a well-designed fight. Um, when you win, the Marquis challenges you to seek him back in Limberry, where he comes yeah. from, and to claim the Aura site that he already carries. So he's like, come find me in Limberry and grab this Aura site if that's what you want. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah. goodbye. Um, and then we get a scene where Rafa is mourning her brother's death. They, they stay together all night, and she watches the sunrise as he's yeah. lying there. Right? And she's still talking to him, but it's unclear if he's... I believe he has already died. Yes. That he is He's gone. dead. But she's still talking as if he is... Yeah, there, Maybe could still hear him. Yeah. Watching the sunrise, you know, yeah, crying, like they used to do. mourning him. Yeah. And then she has... I think the Taurus Stone or one of the, one of the Zodiac I, Stones. I don't remember the names, but yeah. And... Uh, she hears, she, she speaks as if she hears a voice coming mm -hmm. from it. And Ramza's mind immediately goes to why Don't do this. Don't, don't talk to talk that person. To yes. Do not and listen. And that's what I'm thinking too. I'm like, Trust you have me. to fight her now. Trust me. Don't yeah. listen to that person. But then a power like, a, a heavenly power descends mm -hmm. and revives Merrick. And he comes back to life. And it's just like, wait a minute. The stones aren't yes. just evil? That's what I put right? here. Yep. That's, maybe a, that's this, a nice twist. Maybe the stones can be used for good after all. Yeah. Maybe they are godly in nature originally. Right. It's just the heart of the person it's, using it. It's the person. Will either create a conduit to the nether right. or to the heavens. Yeah. Um, and then Ramza and uh, Marek talk about this as in the, in the closing parts of the, of the act here. Ramza says, I'd thought Arasite a product not of godly fashion, but an issue of hands far fouler a gateway of sorts for Lukavi into our world. And Merrick says, I know not by whose hands it came to be, but I do not think it's evil inherent. I believe it is the wielder who gives its power shape. So yeah, the stones are not inherently yeah. evil. It's all about the person wielding them. Now, I, don't, I still don't know how I feel about Merrick getting forgiveness here. <laughs> I don't feel like he apologized well enough. He took a bullet for his sister. I guess you yes. could call that a sacrifice. That's what the game wants. Because yes. otherwise he does have to die. The game says, huh? Eh, is this good enough? Is this good I enough, think it might, have, it might have helped a little bit if when he woke up he had a, another conversation with her and said, I, right. I'm not worthy of you. I didn't believe sure, you. Sure. I, you. I don't deserve your affection. Right. Like, I deserve to die kind of a thing. And she can say something like, I forgive you, it's fine. I know your heart and you were wrong, yes, but like, I still love you. You're still my brother and I want you to have a, another chance in life yeah. or something like that. If there had been Just some kind of exchange dialogues. like that, it would have yeah. softened it. But I didn't feel like Merrick ever properly apologized to his sister yeah. for not believing her right. that she was made such a horrific victim of... Barrington and the fact that he kept serving him and was willing to kill her for him. Yeah. Like, that's not apologized for sufficiently <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. And it no, needs I to mean, be. <laughs> I mean, I, I would agree, generally speaking. I didn't get all of that context in my first playthrough, but it was way too much. It almost felt like he was being possessed himself, that he was had some yeah. weird... but. I don't think that's actually what happened. It just kind of felt that way because his character was too one-dimensional, was too too strange. I do want to not say a fact, <laughs> but offer the 
general perspective that um, I have read about. I do not have firsthand knowledge of this, and I hope to never have firsthand knowledge of this. But when and I don't have sisters, and my daughter is four, so it's like. Pff, but when um, something along the lines of a rape situation happens, it is whoever considers themselves to be the guardian of the oh. woman will often deny it because take they it failed very hardly yeah and and some people would look at it as a like oh there's a sexism element here I, it may be that in the fact that it's just some like like old older ideas of how the daughters of a culture are to be protected you know just generally speaking right and it's like you didn't do your job if this happened, it's your fault. Yeah, under your right? watch. And it means you weren't a good enough guardian, you weren't a good enough father, brother, whatever it is, leader, that you allowed that to happen. And it, it, it's so funny because the, it, like a, a woman will take that hard as, as it should be taken hard. That is not a light thing to happen. Um, and often women will be very critical that the men are taking it harder than they did. Like yeah. the father will f become very distant from a daughter after that happens if the father knows about it. And, and he will really, really want to just pretend that it never happened and to feel like they could maybe still be, it, it's like they failed in their, it's like, what do I do now? Like I failed, you know? And I'm just saying that this is how it, I'm not saying it should be, but it will often be the, the male, um, what was the word, guardian figure who will take it even harder. And, and the fact that when Malik, Malik? Merrick. Yeah. Merrick, it's different. They probably is Malik in the PS1 version because yeah. they always um, reverse it. <laughs> when Merrick is saying, I'm your elder, as soon as she brings something up and he slaps her and stuff, he's saying, I'm your elder, you listen to me. He's basically reasserting that I'm in charge of you and I don't believe you because I can't believe you. Because if I believed you, then I'm at fault because I'm in charge here and it would mean that I wasn't a good uh, guardian. And that is just a perspective thing. I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying no, no. the facts. No, no, he wouldn't be right. I'm, I'm saying this for the audience. But it does create <laughs> nuance to the situation. There is something there. There is uh, uh, an element of human nature in that response. Yeah. Again, it's not the correct response. No, it's it is the, it is, it is driven selfish. It's a selfishly driven response. It is the wrong it's response. my failure is more important to me than your yes. victimization, which is wrong in and of itself. Yes. But it there is a certain element to that that I hadn't considered that probably is a motivating factor in how he is acting and responding to her when she brings this up. I would think it would lend some more realism to the situation. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it feels convincing yeah. as a motivating factor for the character. Um, still wrong and something that yeah. would take self-reflection to say, this isn't about me. Exactly. It's about her. That's the thing. That's the hard part. Yeah. And I wish he yeah. had had that yes. realization that moment. That in moment dialogue with her. Yeah. So that he, he could see what he had done wrong, realize it, take ownership of that, and apologize. That's what I would have liked to yeah. have seen happen. Well. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> and you, you, are, you are correct in I that. I wish that had happened. Okay. Uh, this is where it comes to the end. I just... Um, Oh, I Touch just had down. one more. Oh, sure. <clears throat> one more note here in general, saying if the stones merely work off your emotion, they can be said, as I brought up earlier, to be working based on the gods of ancient times, right? Like, like possession of a spirit, right? Right. That you are you are possessed by 
Odin or something as you go to war and you, you invite the spirit into your being and you go and enact what Odin would do where he, you know, that's part of just possession by one of the, the gods. But it's, it's philosophical and it's emotional. It's not so much a substantial thing. It's like it's an idea kind of idea. And right. it, it's a battle of ideas yeah. here. Um, so this is like possession of a spirit of God. The God that possesses you will manifest through the stone. So one with a good heart will find the stones to do good work. That, this is kind of speculation, that last line there. Yeah. Um, but you invite the God that you want to help you. So this would be a poly, polytheistic world here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can invite the God of, of up or down, but there's an opposition to both. So there's a good Aquarius and a bad Aquarius. There's a good Virgo and a bad Virgo. Yeah. Well, the heavens so. and the nether, which is part of their powers, like uh, the, the Merrick Rafa thing, like yeah. she's like the oh, heaven yes. conduit and he's the nether conduit. Oh, there you go. You're right, because yeah. one of them, yeah, because their powers are kind of like, oppo- they oppose yeah. each other a little bit. The yin-yang. They've got that yin-yang concept. thing going yeah. on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, anyways, frustration with the growing stalemate, the Order of the Northern Sky recalled its full force from the war's now expensive front. Uh, they, they marched on Fort Besolet with plans to turn the tide of the war. Ramza decides to meet Delita. He believes Falmarv is the puppet master here. So that's where he's going next. Ramza's going to find Delita to talk to him about things. And that's going to be the start of Chapter 4, which we will cover next week. Thank you for watching. We've got to get Kaysen to the train station now. Last episode next week. See you then. Be there, be square. Peace out.